so that you can uh, find out what is in it. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern <clears throat> Sense. You're listening to us on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Oh, actually, today, not on Facebook and YouTube because I'm having problems with the video. I'm your hostess with the most just the radio chick, Annie, along with my cavalier co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, Great to be back on. As you know, I'm here in Florida, and I keep looking out my window, hoping I'll see the space shuttle fly up, you know, into the sky again, this time with all the uh, Democratic candidates on it. As they ascend, I'd like to wave <laughs> to them, but <laughs> since we don't have the space shuttle anymore, it's just a pipe dream, but I'll I keep wishing, <laughs> hoping and wishing. <laughs> You're so bad. You're so bad. Oh, man. I want to welcome everyone that's listening in. Uh, if you're trying to get us over on Facebook and YouTube video, uh, unfortunately, my computer had crashed a couple of weeks back. It took a while for me to get it back from the guy who was supposedly an expert, and nothing was fixed. And I should have gone to the place I went to. In the end, because I've used them in the past, Computer Dynamics, they're excellent people. Guys, I'm giving you a shout-out. They may be listening to us as we speak. Uh, They are politically incorrect like we are, so we love them. So, guys, thank you, Computer (laughs) Dynamics. They got my computer up and running. But in order to do that, they had to wipe everything off my computer. I was using Windows 7, and that was the drive that crashed. So they had to switch to a new hard drive, which means I've lost everything. Well, actually, not everything. I was able to back up most of my data to the other computer, but I lost my settings. I lost everything and had to reload, and I'm still in the process of reloading programs. The settings, until I get them right, I will not be doing the video cast. And just a word of caution, uh, if you're looking for the show next week, don't. We will be taking off next week. Curtis has a medical appointment, and I will be undergoing that heart procedure I mentioned before, having the watchman implanted into my heart. So next week's show is out. I will be returning from the hospital uh, on that Friday, and I know I will be completely wiped out because I've got to go all the way down to Savannah and back up again. So that is about an hour drive down there. So today they, I'm going to be spending the night at the hospital, and they'll be releasing me on Friday. All goes well. So knock on wood. Knocking on wood. Um, today, I do believe, not only is it Flag Day, our U.S. flag, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later on, it is also, I do believe, Donald Trump's birthday. So I've got something here, a little special shout-out to the Prez. And this is Big Don. Uh, let me just get everything. Soft. Download the Amazon. Something's, something's not supposed to be playing here. Wait a minute. Something's, I don't know what was playing. <laughs> but we're going to try this <laughs> again. And as I pull it up, and here we go. See if Annie finally got her act together. Big Don. 
to a foreign hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Trooper Lucas Bartley Dowell of Virginia State Police. His end of watch was Monday, February 4th of this year. And the dedication is coming from Fox News, WFXR-TV, and from SWVA Today. And it starts off with A Virginia state trooper died after a shooting broke out during an attempt to serve a search warrant in the town of Farmville late Monday, February 4th. Lucas Dowell has been identified in reports as the trooper who was shot during the raid 
and later died in the hospital. The suspect died on the scene. State police said the authorities were executing a search warrant at a home when the shooting broke out. The raid was performed by the Piedmont Regional Drug and Gang Task Force and supported by Tactical Team, an equivalent of a SWAT team. The Tactical Team had made entry into the residence shortly before 10 p.m. when an adult male inside the residence began shooting at them, Virginia State Police said in a news release. The Tactical Team members returned fire. Dow's colleagues praised him for his sacrifice and courage. He dedicated during his years on the force. This is an extremely difficult day for the state police, said Colonel Gary T. Settle, Virginia State Police Superintendent, according to WWBT. We are humbled by Lucas' selfless sacrifice and grateful for his dedicated service to the Commonwealth. He will forever be remembered by his state police family for his great strength of character, tenacity, Valor, loyalty, and sense of humor, he added. The suspect, who was the only person in the house, also died. His identity is not being released on this show. Here at the Virginia State Police Headquarters in Appomattox, the flags fly at half-staff. A car sits out front with flowers. A trooper is not forgotten. He put others in front of himself. And that was one of the greatest qualities about him, said Jonathan Barber, Virginia State Police Trooper and Lucas's roommate. Trooper Jonathan Barber not only worked with Trooper Lucas Dow, but was his roommate. People knew him, people worked with him, and he had his family. But I kind of knew him on both fronts, and that will be very special, he said. Many troopers spoke about the love Trooper Dow had for his job. He would be the first guy to jump up and go to work when some sort of call came through, and he carried that with him every day, said Lieutenant David Edwards. He loved doing that job. He really loved that job, and I think that's what exactly where he wanted to be, said Jonathan. Many knew him as a goofball in the academy, like Trooper Gavin Lee. He was just a ball of joy. He figured out life and lived it to its fullest, said Lee. Those who were close say they will never forget their brother in blue. I stopped to get gas at our area office, and we have to write our mileage down for the gas receipts. And the last three digits of the mileage was 876, which was Lucas's badge number. And I lost it, Lee said. I think just who he was as a person, as a man, will carry on for itself. And that's powerful, said Jonathan, his roommate. A few weeks prior, Trooper Lucas Dow was participating in instructor training in Richmond. Each student had to pick a topic of his choice and deliver a speech on it. When his turn came, Dow turned on his PowerPoint and informed the group that he'd be speaking about snowboarding. Everybody laughed. Adam Blevins, a friend of long standing, recalled the moment gratefully as he thought of his fallen fellow trooper and Smith County native. Trooper Dow's smile and the laughter he sparked were on the minds of so many people as they mourned the 28-year-old's line-of-duty death. Mike Sturgill, who was Dow's principal at Chihaui Elementary and Chihaui High School, 
remembered that when the child and then the young man walked into a room, it lit up. Jeff Robinson, who coached Dowell in football and baseball and taught him history, said virtually the same words, reflecting he always had a smile on his face. His smile will forever be something I remember about him. He would light up a room with his outgoing personality. While that smile will live on in his loved one's memories, those who loved Dow were grieving for her life cut short. Trooper Dow was a member of Virginia State Police Tactical Team that was assisting the Piedmont Regional Drug and Gang Task Force with executing a search warrant at a Cumberland County residence just north of Farmville. According to the Virginia State Police, the tactical team made entry into the home shortly before 10 p.m., when a man inside the residence began shooting at them. The team members returned fire, fatally wounding the man, who died at the scene. Trooper Dow was transported to Southside Community Hospital in Farmville, where he succumbed to his injuries. The suspect was the only individual inside this residence at the time of the shooting. Trooper Dow's is the department's 66th line of duty death. Blevins contemplated Dow's courage. He's the kind of guy who just wanted to be the first one in and the last one out, he said, reflecting that it takes a measure of courage to put on the uniform. Lucas was just a courageous guy. In addition to his bravery, Blevins said, Dow was a good person. No one, he said, could say anything bad about him. He and Dow were county rivals in football and baseball with Blevins playing for Marion Senior High and Dow for Chihaui. Blevins, who transferred to Smith County last summer, was grateful for the time the pair recently spent together in Richmond. He asked Dow about coming home too. I can't believe it happened. It's a dark day for sure, Blevins said. Sturgeon, who spent much of the morning with educators who remembered Dow and teach with his mother, agreed. Sturgill also concurred about Dow's character. The word outstanding doesn't touch Lucas Dow, he said, citing his worth ethic, his character, and his morals. As a student, the longtime principal said, Dow was the kind of kid who made coming to work every day a joy. Today's show is dedicated to Trooper Lucas Bartley Dow. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. And we also dedicate to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. Was great that taught my 
You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. Oh, you know exactly what I'm going to say. So just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with Courageous Curtis today. I want to welcome everyone that's listening <laughs> in the chat room. Uh, and I have to apologize. I cannot get up onto Facebook or YouTube just yet. My computer, after it crashed, the settings all just went kaflooey. So I got to get someone that knows something about a mixer board and the programs I'm using to get ourselves back up. So hopefully, uh, not next week, but the week after, we should have the video back up again. Want to remind everyone that we will not have a show, a live show tomorrow, not tomorrow, next week, uh, because I am undergoing that surgical procedure. So I will be in cardiac care uh, next week. So uh, I will be back the following week. So. Take a rest, take a vacation, uh, go annoy someone else. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> talk about annoying people. Today is Flag Day. Today is the day that Congress recognized and authorized our American flag and the seal, the, the, the seal of the nation. And there's a lot of talk about the meaning of the flag, the field of stars representing each state, and they're put on a navy blue field to represent the the stars in the sky uh, the red for the valor and courageousness of the men and women that have bled for this nation the white for our virtue and justice of this nation and on this flag day this day that we celebrate the marvelous thing that is these United States of America I came across this on the News, it was on AmericanUpdate.com. Anti-Trump woman's soccer star pounded after disrespecting the national anthem. You know, didn't we go through this with the NFL? And didn't the NFL see their numbers plummet? So this woman has to wear not just her feminism on her sleeve, but her part of being of the LBGTXYZ, LMNOQP, whatever it is. Um, community. It reads, Women's soccer star Megan Rapinoe was slammed by observers after she refused to respect the U.S. national anthem during a World Cup game on Tuesday, as the Daily Wire reports. Last month, 
the United States women's national soccer team captain, Megan Rapinoe, told Yahoo Sports, I'll probably never put my hand over my heart for the national anthem ever again. At the Tuesday's World Cup match against Thailand, Rapinoe kept her word. The openly gay forward, who cares if she's gay or not, just play the game, refused to put her hand over her heart and sing along to the national anthem, which was apparently an F.U. to sexist, racist, and small-minded President Donald Trump. Happy birthday, President Trump. During the Yahoo Sports interview, Rapinoe proudly dubbed herself a walking protest when it comes to the Trump administration because of everything she stands for hinting at her sexuality. I feel like it's a kind of defiance in and of itself to just be who I am and wear the jersey and represent it because I'm as talented as I am. I get to be here. You don't get to tell me if I can be here or not, she said. It's one thing to disagree with the president. It's quite another to disrespect your country. You know, the flag stands for all the men and women that fought for our liberties and freedom. That flag also stands for the men and women who in the Civil War fought for the freedom of the slaves. That flag stands for every country we went to the defense of to bring to them freedom from the tyranny they were, express, they were experiencing. That flag stands for freedom and liberty and for the American people. It doesn't stand for whoever is sitting in the Oval Office. It stands for these United States in totality, from what was our past history and for what is our future. And if she doesn't stand and salute the flag and stand and, and recognize the star-spangled banner, our national anthem, then shame on her. Shame on her and every single man and woman that has stood to defend that flag and her ability and her right to act like an ass, shame on her. Well, you know, they they have a, a righteousness you wouldn't even find in the Bible. And they have an arrogance that's like over the top here in, in the real world. Um, liberals, for some reason, have the superiority complex. And I really think they they feel that they're above everything. I mean, look how they treated Miss um, Sanders, you know, since she's leaving the White House as a correspondent. I mean, they were talking real bad about her and stuff on CNN and MSNBC. And, and then they're going to say she wasn't classy, but what they're saying was classy. I'm telling you, these folks, this is why they're going to get their butts handed to them um, in 2020. I have no doubt. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we've got ourselves some great guests uh, uh, on the show today. We have Richard Lynch. He's returning. He's got Richard Lynch Band. Uh, he also does a lot of work with veterans, helping them with his uh, foundation, Love Tattoo. Um, he's got a brand-new album out. We're going to be talking to him about that new album and some of the things that he's got on there and what they stand for. And what I mean, he's a great American. So I see people that are in our call line in the studio want to remind you that if you are our guest or if you want to have a comment or a question, please press 1. Otherwise, I will assume that you're listening. And, again, thank you to all the people that are inside uh, the chat room. Uh, it's always great fun to have our guys over there, and some of them are some real characters. <laughs> it's always fun. Um, oh, yeah. Now I just, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> 
Dumb, I'm having a belonging moment. <laughs> oh, one other thing I wanted to, to you mentioned uh, the liberal superiority complex that they have. It was oh, yeah. just exposed again. Uh, yes, just exposed again. God bless James O'Keefe, Project Veritas. Uh, he's got a, a new uh, video up out there on his website. You've got to check it out. Um, he just proved that the social media platform Pinterest uh, has a way of um, classifying posts that Christians and conservatives put up. If you quote a Bible verse, you are listed as a porn site, including anything about pro-life. If you, if you post anything about being pro-life and not pro-choice, you are labeled a pornographic site. Now tell me how quoting a Bible verse is porn. Tell me about supporting the life of the pre-born child is pornography. Please tell me how it is. Can anyone? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, James O'Keefe on his website, Project Veritas, uh, has the video up. He had it up on Twitter and YouTube, but they pulled it down, saying it wasn't approved content. <laughs> so <laughs> he just proved by posting the video, exposing, using a whistleblower whose identity he protected to protect the person's safety, um, that the left is doing anything and everything to silence the conservative voice on a website that is supposed to give equal uh, play to both sides of the conversation, claiming that they want both sides of the conversation, but deliberately labeling our side of the conversation as pornography. <laughs> yeah, you know? we we don't we don't matter to them. <laughs> so why why no, have us? And, uh, <laughs> and they have uh, James. No, Robert Shapiro. Robert Shapiro, who happens to be Jewish, uh, they labeled him as a, uh, what was it? I'm trying to find it. Oh, Ben Shapiro as being, was added to the sensitive terms list. So if you use the name Ben Shapiro in anything, or Candace Owens, you get tagged as sensitive terms, and you get blacklisted. Uh, who was it when they had a Jewish guy they listed uh, as a white supremacist. Oh, yeah, that was Ben Shapiro. An Orthodox Jew is a white supremacist. Um, LiveAction.org was la- added to the porn block list. And this is this is going crazy. This is going out of hand. You know? <laughs> the left is going oh. nuts on us, guys. <laughs> Those guys are getting desperate by the day. You know, um, I don't know where... It will all end, but I know for us it'll be the win column, and for them it'll be the lost column. And and I hope we overdo it. You know, there was a big controversy about you know our sports team, you know, taking advantage of um, our superior skills and running up the score. I hope we do that with um, with the um, Democrats in 2020, like Reagan um, did in um, his last um, campaign. I think he won 49 out of 50 states. So, so sorry. I'm left. If we, you know, <laughs> run up the score. 
<laughs> Absolutely. But they're trying to do an end run about, around that by saying abolish the Electoral College. And it's also that new um, uh, popular vote movement where they're trying to get so many states in order to get that 200 and was it 271 Electoral College uh, votes by having that yeah, uh, still popular vote that. resolutions and legislations being passed state by state, which means I've got to reach out to Bobby. Um, Lawrence, oh, yeah, we got to get him back on. Bobby Lawrence and get him back on. He's got the protectyourvoteusa.org uh, where he exposed it. You know, it's funny because someone sent me something uh, saying, look out, they're going to try to abolish electoral college. This is just hitting the news. And I turned around and I emailed that person back and go, uh, we've been on this for the last two years. Where have you been? <laughs> Sending Bobby's uh, link to his website, protectyourvoteusa.org. You know, mainstream media is just finally starting to see what we've been talking about all these years. Through eight years of Obama, now two years of Trump. No, wait a minute. Go back to the Bush presidency. They were doing it to him back then, but not as, as bad as they're doing it to Trump. Um, True. Yeah, and Chief just wrote that his state of Oregon just joined the Popular Vote Compact. Um, Are you kidding so me? That means no, not kidding, not kidding at all. I'm going to pull up uh, Bobby's uh, website now uh, to see how many uh, states have now signed on and uh, how many. I'm pulling that up right now. If I can hit the right keys. So it's Protect Your Vote USA, and let's see if we've got – if he's got a number on there yet. Uh, Bobby, 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 have you updated this? Uh, state Legislation News Overview. Let's see what he's got here. Mm. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby I and I, we'll, we will be speaking in – I think it's Ormond Beach sometime in July, so we're going to meet for the first time. No, he I'm doesn't have the total to number up on here yet. So I'm going to have to give him a call and ask him where we uh, stand on this one. Because uh, if Oregon just went in, I don't know how many popular votes they got, they have there in the state of Oregon. But, uh, well, he, do, he does have some new postings up there and some new news. Uh, if they get up to 271, you know, we're going to be in trouble. It's over. So, yeah. Yeah. And and the sad thing I think about this is that most of our um, congressmen don't really seem to be too concerned. <laughs> I've, no. I've spoken no, to a number of them. It's like, oh, we we don't think it's, it's nothing to be worried about. You know, how could that be? And they slowly, you know, we all know that the Democrats are relentless. They are patient and. They are resolved to, um, even if it takes, you know, a couple of decades to achieve what they, they go after. And, I, I, and I, I've seen this over and over, you know, um, the Democrats well, just pacing themselves while we just sleep at the will. You know, we need to wake up. Well, in the, in the, the Bush-Gore camp, in the Bush-Gore, uh, I don't know what you want to call that fiasco, you know, the hanging chags from your state of Florida. That's when they started with the oh, push yeah. of the national popular vote, because when when they Big saw point. how they saw a chance when they went to the Supreme Court to finally certify the election uh, w- between Bush and Gore, 
that's when they really started that campaign. So this has been going on for decades. They see a chance now with the unpopularness, so they call it, of President Trump, and where Hillary got the popular vote and Trump got the electoral college vote, and rightly so, the way our founders intended it so that each state had an equal voice, not, not the city of New York, Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago controlling the votes of the nation, each state having its equal voice, they decided to try again with this national popular vote. So what do they do? They use low voter intellect, what do you call it? I mean, uh, they're going after the ill-informed voter, the people that don't pay attention to what this country stands for or its history or why we are, are... Created this republic, created in this manner, so that each and the schools don't teach it. No, so they take the uninformed and they feed them the propaganda. It's like your vote doesn't count. Well, I'll tell you what, folks. If the national popular vote compact succeeds, your vote will not count. Period. End report. The country will be then controlled by Philadelphia, New York. Newark, Boston, San Francisco, California, Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, these heavy urban centers that lean heavy progressive will control the nation until its final failure. And under them, it will fail because then the Constitution will be completely uprooted. And everything our founders did. Everything that every man and woman did to fight for the freedoms of this nation will go to hell in a handbasket. Well, you know, Annie, what the left, especially those that I know personally, friends and family members who who tell me that um, they don't think their vote count, I, I say to them, you know, well, how can you account for two terms of Clinton? How can you account for two terms of Obama? How can you account for Jimmy Carter and all the other Democrats throughout our history? I said, y'all had no problems with them when they were elected. You know, you didn't have an outcry about the Electoral College. And that's, you know, that's what we have to do. We have to, um, you know, throw this stuff back in their faces when they come at us like that, you know. Um, I mean, what do you mean you don't think your vote counted? It counted when um, Obama won. And you, you were happy about that. And they don't have much to say then. Nope. Nope. But this election, if it, if it's a landslide, I think it will be. Um, it may put a moot point on the national popular vote because if Trump wins by not only the Electoral College but by also the national popular vote, if we get enough Republicans, conservatives, independents, and across the aisle, Democrats that will cross all over to vote for Trump, if we can get enough of our people out there to vote, we may be able to take the national popular vote. And that <laughs> will maybe put an end and I think we to the will. national popular vote movement. See how many states rescind those compacts if that happens. Yeah, I mean, look at who the Democrats are putting up against Trump. <clears throat> You know, a, a bunch of has-beens and, and socialists. <laughs> they don't have a chance, you know, unless they cheat. And, of course, you know, mm-hmm. 
That's not beneath the Democrats to cheat. No. Talking about you know, Democrats still to cheat. Talk about cheating Democrats. AOC, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the New York Congresswoman. Oh, the one that wants a raise. <laughs> she deserves a raise now. <laughs> well, she's got a challenger. There is a gentleman by the name of Rich Valdez uh, that he is mulling the idea to run against her in the 2020 election. Now, Valdez is from New Jersey and said if he decides to run, he will move into the district in New York. Now, mind you, there is questions as to whether or not she actually does live legally in the district she represents. Uh, There was questions about her paying her boyfriend, uh, violating campaign finance law uh, uh, improperly out of her campaign. You know, this is the one that wants the Green New Deal. Uh, this is the one that cost New Yorkers 25,000 guaranteed jobs with Amazon alone. Not talking about all the auxiliary jobs that would have sprung up around that as for uh, housing for these new employees, restaurants, grocery stores, uh, schools, the teachers, uh, adding in additional fire police to cover all these new residents that will end up you know, in the city of New York. The tax revenues that would go to not only to the city of New York, but to the state of New York. And this genius has a challenger who happens to be a fellow Hispanic. So I think if he runs, I think there are enough angry New Yorkers who finally realized who she really is, this airhead bartender, now congresswoman. Oh, wow. Now, there's so much to talk about. And Richard Lynch is, he is a, calling in about Is he a Democrat? Minutes. Is he a Democrat no, or Republican? No, he's a Republican. No, no, he oh, is okay. a conservative. He's a radio host, and he is a solid conservative. Yeah. And uh, we'll see what happens. I hope he does run. Yeah, I tried reaching out to him, uh, but the email came back as invalid. So uh, I think his website may have crashed with so many people hitting on it, asking him to run. But I'll try again. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of New Yorkers. They're they're tired of um, losing their um, tax base, which is the wealthy people who are leaving New York in droves, just like they leave in California, you know. And they see what's happening, and they want to put a stop to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the reasons why my husband and I left New York. The cost of living just went so sky high. The taxes that you paid just went through the roof. And, I mean, the amount of money I was paying to heat the home I was living in is the same amount of money I'm paying for uh, – let me see if I can get this all correct – the electricity, which runs the heat in my home as well as everything else in the home, uh, water, um, telephone, uh, TV. I can take four bills here, and it would be the same amount of money I paid for just the one bill simply to heat the home. Electricity was sky high. That was a separate bill. And, of course, then your water and everything else. Taxes alone. In the home, I was living in New York, which... 
let me see. At the time, it was worth 165000 the home I was living in. Those taxes on that home were over $7,500 a year, and that was back in the year 2000. So when I purchased this home, and at the time it was valued at 165, my taxes on this home were around $800 a year. So is it any wonder that people are leaving places like New York and California? Is it any wonder? Yeah, the smart ones are. <laughs> no, I mean the groceries are even cheaper. You know, I can still get a loaf of bread for less than two dollars. Can you do that in New York? I don't think so. Tell me where you can find a loaf of bread. I mean, my mom waits for Wednesdays when she's here living. When she commutes between where her home down in the Caribbean and here, she waits for the dollar store to open up, and she can get a loaf of bread, a full-size loaf of bread for a buck. Tell me if you can do that in New York. I don't think so. Uh, talking about Congress, because Cog brings up <laughs> the Congress, <laughs> the low, <laughs> the low Congress. IQ members of Congress. <laughs> um, it looks like uh, our Department of Justice is finally going after some of um, our people that we have sitting in Congress uh, that have fraudulent tax returns, such as Ilian Omar. Um, Looks like there's eight years of fraudulent, felonious tax returns, which Michelle Malkin had pointed out quite a while ago. And let me see, this was from Trump Train Train News, uh, Mm. which they report, actually this originally was in the Daily Caller, and the Daily Caller reports Democratic Minnesota Representative Ilian Omar improperly spent thousands of dollars in campaign funds on non-campaign expenses in 2016 and 2017 while serving in the state legislature. Minnesota's Campaign Finance and Public Disclosure, Disclosure Board ruled on Thursday. Uh, the state board ordered Omar to personally reimburse her campaign for just under $3,500 the campaign spent on out-of-state travel for Omar and on her joint tax returns. She's also required to pay a civil penalty of 500 using campaign funds to pay for her travels to a conference in Florida where she received an honorarium for speaking. Um, It doesn't sound like it's a huge amount, but the fact that they did it is good. And Michelle Malcolm has uh, written, and this has also been uh, accessed on flag and cross updates, um, that there's a number of additional felonies due to her fraudulent 2009 to 2017 marriage. Now, remember, she's the one that married her brother. Her brother. And, oh, and keeping in the family. Yeah, and another, and another guy, and the three of them were living together for a while. But no, that wouldn't be big of me. <laughs> nah, it wouldn't be. <laughs> and then she used this marriage to her brother as a way for him to emigrate legally here to the United States. But if she has a fraudulent marriage, wouldn't that make that immigration an illegal alien? So her brother... Yeah, it should should be a crime. (laughs) should be a crime. Uh, 
Oh, God. And the news gets even more and more fun. Hey, Jesus. I, I, I pulled up a whole mess of articles uh, and stuff, and there's just there's just so much to, to talk about, and I don't even know where to start. But it looks like the wheels of justice are finally uh, turning as they do the probe. Uh, Bruce Orr, whose wife Nellie worked for uh, Fusion GPS. Now, he worked for Department of Justice, and uh, the firm connected to – yeah, she worked for Fusion GPS, the firm connected to the – Steele dossier, uh, received a bonus while he was working on the Russian probe. So Bruce Orr, Department of Justice, is doing the Russian probe, whose wife worked for Fusion GPS, who provided the Steele dossier uh, to the Russian probe, headed by her husband, Bruce Orr, um, was awarded $28,000 performance bonus while the Russian probe was ongoing, according to newly released DOJ documents. The conservative group, Judicial Watch, known for suing for public records, released the documents related to Orr's salary, saying they obtained them from the Justice Department through a Freedom of Information Act request. Orr's actions during that time have been of interest to investigators, as it's believed Orr was the back channel between the Trump dossier author Christopher Steele, and the FBI. It is also revealed his wife, Nellie Orr, conducted opposition research on Trump for the firm Fusion GPS, the same company that commissioned the dossier raising conflict of interest questions. Gee. And the plot thickens. What do you think of that? Well, she's going to need all that money for defense on purposes, because <laughs> they're coming after her, you know, I have no doubt. I won't be happy mm. until they have um, Hillary, Hillary up there, Eric Holder, Susan Rice, and all the rest of that gang, even Obama, because I think they all did a disservice to this country. And um, when I think of them, that's not who we are as a nation. No. No, it's it's not. You know, they they deliberately flaunt um, the law. They find ways to go around it. You know, you have something like Nancy Pelosi. You know, instead of calling for the impeachment of Trump as the House Speaker, she wants to see Trump put directly into jail. So wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. How many laws is she breaking with that one? You know, you know, you've got a protocol, you've got a set of rules, you've got a set of laws in place. If you think that the president of the United States has committed a crime while sitting, while as a sitting president, if you think he did high crimes and misdemeanor, as the Constitution outlines, then there is a, a protocol to follow. There's a set of rules, a set of laws to follow in which to set about impeaching the president where the indictment is to be written up in the House and presented to the Senate and for the Senate to hold the trial, should the Senate deem it worthy enough to bring to trial. This process has been used over and over again. Andrew Johnson well, you know, impeached. Yeah. Uh, right after, you know, you know, after he took over from right after, um, after Lincoln's Link, assassination. Um, right. Lincoln got assassinated. 
Yeah, the best that the Democrats have right now is that Trump fired Comey. The thing about that is that that's within his um, constitutional rights, you know, to fire anybody that comes under the, you know, executive branch. So, I mean, they have nothing. They're reaching for straws and they're still searching for crime. I mean, they keep saying, let's impeach this guy. But what is the crime I'm, I'm trying to figure out? There is none. Wasn't it proved? Wasn't it proved that it was not Trump who ordered the fire of Comey? It was Rob Rosenstein that ordered the fire of Comey. And Rob Rosenstein—that's true—was the boss of Mueller doing That's the right. Trump Russia probe. And Rob Rosenstein was, was in charge of Mueller doing the Trump Russia probe. So yeah. Rob Rosenstein was unhappy with Comey's performance. Rob Rosenstein is the he, man who wielded the axe. So yeah, they he don't took even that under that. recommendation. Yeah. But, um, you, know, you know, they keep saying, they keep saying. He did, well, as you rightly pointed out, Curtis, he served at, at, uh, what was the word you used? At the pleasure, at the pleasure of the president. Thank you, at the pleasure of the pre- They have nothing to stand on, do. so they're going for strength. But, you know, their main mantra, their main mantra is Trump is not above the law. Well, how come they have no problem putting illegals above the law? That's my question. Yeah. There are so many instances of where the law was being flaunted. flaunted. Um, You can go back to, uh, oh, good Lord. My mind is I'm having a couple of uh, blanks because someone mentioned in the chat room Benghazi where we had units nearby that could have been there to rescue them in a timely fashion. And yet the troops were never deployed. And they lied about oh, that. Oh, they were man. too far away. They couldn't get there in time. Multiple calls from the compound were made directly to Hillary Clinton and others calling for help. We're under attack. They're coming in. And the rescue was Annie, never done. You're not talking about that scandal-free administration, are you? <laughs> According to Uncle Joe. Scandal-free. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've got that here, too. Uh, yes. Crazy Uncle Joe. What is a presidential campaign without a grabber? Someone who's touchy-feely. Oh, can I have a hug? Crazy Uncle Joe. Oh, good luck. The Obama administration uh, supposedly hadn't a hint of scandal during the Obama-Biden. Here are the top ten. Number ten, the the new Black Panther Party scandal. And if people remember election day, where members of the Black Panther Party were outside Philadelphia. the Philadelphia polling place, wearing a military garb, making racial remarks, and discouraging people from voting. Voter intimidation, that is called. That is a felony. That is illegal. We had the new Black Panther Party down in Texas uh, openly marching to prevent people from voting, to intimidate voters in Texas. Philadelphia. 
And there were other places that they showed up in voter intimidation, but none so blatant as in Philadelphia, where they were caught on camera in Texas and Philadelphia. Uh, let's see. Uh, AmeriCorps, uh, where Obama fired Inspector General Gerald Walpin for investigating his friend and donor, Kevin Johnson. Johnson was under investigation for misusing federal grant money for AmeriCorps. Johnson took $850,000, that's over three-quarters of a million dollars of that money for his own nonprofit uh, organization, were used to pay for political activity. The investigation revealed a cover-up of sexual abuse allegations against Johnson made by three underage students. These three girls were offered some of this grant money as hush money, when Walpin recommended charges against Johnson, Obama, in violation of federal law, fired him. An investigation by Congress into the illegal firing was met with stonewalling by the Obama White House and the withholding of documents. And, oh, gee, doesn't this sound familiar? They also deliberately misled Congress about the reasons for the firing. Hmm. So that's not a scandal. Number eight. The green energy loan scandal, uh, where the administration went bankrupt or found themselves in major financial trouble that isn't a scandal. Uh, the taxpayers who footed $80 billion, that's you and me, $80 billion for the green economy initiatives that went to companies that supported their campaign. The best-known example was a company that went up, Solyndra. So Linda received more than a half billion dollar loan, despite the fact that the Department of Energy knew they were on the verge of bankruptcy. And they made other energy loans to other companies that went belly up. Oh, and here's another one. Can't have a good scandal without some sex in it, like we saw in the previous one with the uh, Johnson situation. The Secret Service prostitution scandal. In 2012, they were caught on a visit to Columbia, um, they found that even though there was that White House responded with a bogus internal investigation that predictably found that no White House staffers were involved in the scandal. When evidence emerged that a White House staff member may have been involved, the White House tried to cover up. So we got sex scandals with the Secret Service in the advance party with prostitutes and partying and drinking. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. no scandal there. No scandal there. No. Oh, and what about, here we go, number six, the Iran ransom scandal. Gee, unmarked bill, dollar bills and uh, other currency, foreign currency, shipped to Iran on wooden pallets and dropped off. No scandal there. The amount of $400 million. And this was to coincide with the release of four hostages that was done completely in secret. But no scandal there. No, no, no. Hmm. Should we mention Fast and Furious, where people actually lost their lives? Brian Terry was shot with a gun that was part of the Fast and Furious scandal. No scandal there. And the beat goes on and on and on. And then we end up with the Trump spying scandal. Of the Obama Biden White House, no scandals, no, no, I can't, don't have that. But anyway, to change hey, did they, the did they have Benghazi on there and Acorn? Uh, were uh, were and they on the list? 
extortion yes, seventeen. Yeah, and we've got our next guest. Let me just. <laughs> All right, let's bring in our guest here on the line. He's always fun to have on. I want to welcome back Richard Lynch of the Richard Lynch Band. Good afternoon, Richard. How are you today? Well, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. You can see I'm on a bit of a tear today. Bring a little lightness to the conversation. Uh, congratulations on your new album, out, blah, 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 can't really, album that was just released, Mending Fences, and I was listening to it last night, and I love it. Um, you are the quintessential in country. Um, and also, you know what, last time you were on, I forgot to mention the, the TV show that you also do. Uh, I was watching some of the ep- episodes on that one. Um, tell us about the TV show. Well, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've got a television show that um, airs every Saturday morning, and uh, uh, it's being picked up. Um, well, look, I should say uh, it's being aired in Cincinnati, Ohio, every Saturday morning. And uh, it's been picked up on a national set, uh, scene, uh, the Cowboy Channel has picked it up, and now they're airing it. And uh, there are several uh, social media sites that are airing it as well. So it's about traditional country music, and um, I, you know, I want to keep and preserve that traditional sound out there. There's such a need for it. Oh, that that there is because the country that they claim that you listen to now that's being put out there over the airwaves. It's not country. It's just these, um, how am I trying to think of this? It's electronic trickery, whereas you know, instead <laughs> of having to have the talent and skill of actually physically playing that instrument and singing with your actual voice without using all this electronic trickery, you know, that takes talent and skill. It doesn't take any talent for someone to get in front of a microphone and buy a computer and distort it to make it sound good. Just as if you're singing in key with the musicians live. That takes talent. Well, I think you're onto something. You use the word trickery. You know, you you can you can fool um, some of the people, but traditional country fans who've been country music fans for years and years and years, 60s and the 70s and the 80s, 90s, you're not going to trick them. They know better, uh, and they're really hungry. For that real traditional country sound, and uh, you know that's why I think you know me and a few other folks that's writing and recording, you know, new traditional country music are gaining traction the way we are is because um, the folks that uh, you know grew up listening to it or have been country music fans for years and years and years aren't going to be tricked. They're not going to be sold a bill of goods. That's that's not country music. So I think that's why we're doing okay these days. Well, you know, there's something you said in one of the interviews I was watching last night, and it was so true, that, you know, it's easy to make one of these Nashville stars because it's it's an ocean of people, and you can just pluck someone out, uh, give them a nice outfit, paint them up nice and shiny, get a good advertising out there. And sure, you can make an easy million or two right off the bat. But when you have someone like you, you're just one of the few elite. So when you turn around and come out with something, it is like the top of the line. It's hard to make someone like you unless you've got the real talent. 
Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a country music household. Um, by that, I mean my, my dad was an incredible entertainer and singer. And, you know, I, I knew at a young age that's something that I, I wanted to do just because I seen my dad perform. And uh, so I guess I'm second generation on that love of that traditional sounding country music. Yeah. Now, I want to play one of your songs for you, and I picked them out in this specific order because something that someone like you and like me, where we are Christian, we are basically conservative in our values and morals, that we stand for something. And when mm-hmm. we go out and put our voice out there, we stand behind our words, and we don't hide behind a keyboard. We're not an anonymous name. We say, I am Richard Lynch. No, I am Ann Ubellis. These are my words. I stand for these values. And we will be stealth attacked. That's the phrase I'm trying to think of. And you wrote a song about this, which I thought was extremely humorous. And I know my listeners are going to love this song. And if they do, I'm telling them to go to your website, richardlynchband.com, and get your album because they should blare this over their own speakers as they ride through a progressive neighborhood. All right, you mind? Let's do it. All right. This, as I key it up, if I can get my keyboard to go here. All right, here we go. This is your new release, uh, Keyboard Cowboy. So I want people to sit back, relax, and enjoy Richard Lynch, Keyboard Cowboy. Drinking my coffee this morning, tending to my business like I always do. When all of a sudden my phone started ringing, said, did you see the post? What's his name said about you? I had to think for a while, then I started to smile. You mean to tell me he's at it again? I guess some fools never learn a hot poker will burn. Yeah, he's acting like a squawking old hen. Well, one thing is true, he wouldn't know what to do if he took his computer away. So let the fun begin, let's all hit send, and he can see what we have to say. He's a keyboard cowboy. I don't think he's ever been out west. A keyboard cowboy. He shoots off his mouth from behind his desk. A keyboard cowboy. Puts it on Facebook so it must be true. He's a mighty big man with his mouth in his hand and he's coming after me. Here he comes!
that kind of cowboy? Just a no account keyboard cowboy. How do you spell the thing? <laughs> well, you, you got to see the chat room. The chat room loves it, Bridget. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you know, I appreciate that song so much. A couple of weeks back, I had gotten stealth attack. It was during the show, too. And the person turned around and violated several federal laws by cloning my phone number, posting my mother's address. So when I heard that song, I was like, that's the perfect way to describe these people a keyboard cowboy. And it's a stealth attack <laughs> just to shut our voices up. Uh... Well, thanks for the compliment there on the song. I, I think a lot of people, when they hear the song, they can uh, think of a, a face or two come to mind on uh, how it fits a certain person out there. Oh, yeah. And those of us that you know have a, a, a Christian and a conservative <laughs> message, you know, we know this very well. You know, because they, they will not come and use their real name. They'll use a, a phony name. And then as soon as you figure out who they are, they change it. Or they have this new thing now where they change the IP address, so it, it seems like they're coming from all over the country. You know, those keyboard cowboys and the stealth attacks are very real to silence our voices. And what a beautiful song uh, to, to to really expose it for what it is. Cowardice. <laughs> well, thank you, Annie. That was I very much appreciate it. I I love to write my songs. I write them out of experience, and and uh, I I think that's real, really the reason that. You know, traditional country music is they have a storyline or a, uh, you know, an emotion about them that people can connect with. Mhm. Absolutely. And uh, I'm telling people to go to your website not only just to buy this album, but for something else you do. You support the veterans that come back here with an organization you founded a while back. We've talked about this on the show with you, called Love Tattoo. And people can find out more about that by going to your website, richardlynchband.com. Uh, how, how are you going and doing with that? Because I know you recently did some work with them. Well, I'm very fortunate. I mentioned earlier, I know how lucky I am. But I, I had, a, I had at an early age, an appreciation and admiration for the men and women of our country who serve our, who serve our country. And uh, me and my wife put together a foundation um, to help the, the, the veterans out there, you know, they usually don't ask for anything. And but when they, when someone does something to help the veterans, it's amazing how appreciative they really are. And so, me and Ronnie McDowell recorded a song together called "Love Tattoo," and all the proceeds goes to a place called the Willwin Lodge, which is in northern Michigan. It's a 1,200-acre facility with a 60-acre lake. And uh, what that does is it creates a place for some R&R for our vets. And uh, it's sometimes they can go, if they register at the Willowin Lodge, they can spend a week or 10 days there in a beautiful, serene area and have them, have them get their head together and, you know, kind of get their thoughts together. If they need to speak with a, with a doctor or, or a psychiatrist, there's that also. But it's just our little way of being able to give back 
to what who I think is so deserving. That's our our veterans out there. Well, you do great work, and people by going onto your website can actually see the lodge. They can see what the living area is, the dining area. They can they actually see. So if they do make a donation by buying that song "Love Tattoo" off of your your website and your other music, um, they can actually see where their donation is going and how it's helping people. Because I think you recently also hooked up with the lodge in getting a golf cart for the place too, right? That's correct. We um. Every every summer, every uh, first weekend in August, we do a concert up there, and uh, we raise money and uh, uh, to help with the organization and the facility, and and you know we get to meet um, some wonderful um, veterans from all over the country up there, and it's it's pretty humbling because you know I mentioned earlier they they really don't ask for anything. And uh, it's neat to see someone who is, in my opinion, so deserving as these guys and gals. And so they're, you know, it's something that um, it's something you need to see to behold because they're they're really genuinely humble people. And if you're around them, it sure makes me humble because they're they they're they're the real McCoy, I guess you might say. Yeah, I've I've interviewed some of them uh, face to face when they had the independence funds coming through here at one point. And when you talk to these men and women, also don't forget, it's just not just men; it's women now today. Um, it is very humbling to see what they have done, what they have accomplished, and what they're fighting to overcome. And I love telling this one story. I had a sergeant major who was blind, and this was a golf addict. And I had sponsored one of the holes, and I was doing the interview. And believe it or not. He was kicking the pants off of all the other golfers that could see. He had a person tell him, you know, all right, how does it lie? How many feet? What direction am I going? And he would be making these holes unbelievably. You would think a, a blind guy would be would not be able to play golf. But he was beating the pants off of a lot of you know, players out there. You know, these are right. fantastic and amazing men and women. So thank you for the work that you do with Love Tattoo. Well, thank you. They really are deserving. You know, we... Uh, like I said, we play up. The, we do this concert every summer, every August up there, and and you know it's it'll humble you when they walk up to you and uh, you know they're they're genuine. They they, they thank me, and I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, there's no need to thank me. You know, you're the ones that uh, have sacrificed so much, and so I I quickly tell them it's not about me. It's about you guys, and they're just so deserving, and it's great to be around people like that. Yeah, well, this is another thing that, you know, you, you have on your album, uh, because Michael sent me three of your songs over here, and I'm glad he sent these specific three, uh, because as we were mentioning Keyboard Cowboy about stifling our voices, another thing is that you see in the public is attempts to stifle our faith. And this is also something that you address on your album. And what I love about you and a lot of other musicians I've, I've interviewed, you have the ability to not play in just one style. You can adapt your music uh as 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 you see fit whereas you had the last one was a toe tap and dancing you want to get up there and have a beer and whatever the next song we're going to be playing is one that gives you thought and pause and the change in your style of music is is amazing and it's beautiful and you do not lose that country style well so, thank you so much uh, i i I appreciate those kind words. I uh, I, I inherited uh, what talent I have. I guess if I have talent from my dad, he was uh, 
he was a big inspiration in me. And I, you know, I, I try to write songs that, you know, I, I live from experience. You know, I'm, I live on a farm and, and I have a huge appreciation for the agricultural way of life. And so there's a lot of things that uh, I'll see something that kind of hits with me. Like I wrote a song called the old feed store. And if you grew up, on a farm and you was definitely going to a feed store and so <laughs> and just just little songs that people can kinda of connect with and I've had people tell me things like, Well, I heard that song and it was like you wrote the song for me but that really is what country music's all about. You know, you make that that personal connection and they can they can live that song through their life as as they've lived it from you know, the words in your song. It's it's really neat to be able to see that and people connect with that. Yeah, and you don't have grandma and prison in your old pickup truck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the song I'm going to be playing is uh, Pray on the Radio. And we cannot allow people to stifle our faith. So let me get this one keyed up, and we'll get it playing. So here we go. And telling my stories I finally got my songs played On the radio I've been doing interviews Around the country And then one day A DJ asked me and I prayed with you, he said, do you mind if we pray on the radio? Do you mind we talk about the
is so beautiful. And, you know, this someone posted in the chat room something that is so very true, that art should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And that song is extremely comforting to me. Well, thank you there, Annie. That song is a true story. Um, after the 2016 um, election, I had to, I had written a song that was getting an awful lot of attention, and we were doing a radio tour in Kentucky, Arkansas, and Tennessee. And the song at the time that we were promoting was American Proud. And we were doing lots of radio stations and uh, re- received a phone call from our manager said, hey, listen, there's a disc jockey in California that wants to do a um, interview with you on the telephone. I said, okay. So we no sooner had hung up and the phone rang, and it's the disc jockey in, in California. And the first thing he said to me was, wow, Richard, I've been watching you, and I see how busy you are. He said, the Lord must be traveling with you. It's exactly what he said to me. And I said, well, I would like to think so. Well, the interview went on a little bit longer, and the next thing he said to me was, Richard, do you mind if we pray on the radio? Well, I had never been asked that before or since, and uh, never would there be a pad of paper in the truck, but that day there was a pad of paper between me and my wife, and normally I couldn't find a pen with a search warrant, but there was a pen right there (laughs) on the dashboard. So I'm driving down the interstate. I got the phone to my left ear, trying to steer, drive down the highway, and I'm trying to steer my knee and right at the same time. And um, my wife looked at me and had, you know, big eyes, and it's like, oh, my goodness, you're going to get us killed. So she grabbed a pad of paper and a pen, and she was writing down what she heard me say. And... Every word in that song is exactly how the conversation went with the disc jockey in California. So um, the song that was meant to be, I just held the pen basically on that song. Wow. Then God was there at your side, to be honest. You know, there's, there's some songs that will catch me in the throat. And to be honest, um, my co-host is sitting quietly in the background, uh, happens to be a veteran (laughs) as well as a uh, musician. Um, I played classical violin, viola, and I was teaching myself cello. But when I go to church and there's certain songs that I go to sing, you know, during the service, I have a hard time because I feel them so deeply. And this is something that you can hear in that song that you're singing there. Um, And... You you can tell when a person is passionate when you hear the song. You, know, you have yeah. musicians that will just sing the notes and just to get it out there to make another cut on the record album. But then there are people that when they sing the song, a good musician will feel it. And that's what you convey. I think you're right. There's a line in that song that says, I'm thankful God likes my music enough to ride with me. And uh, when I wrote the song, and you can ask my wife if she was here with you, she'd be telling the same thing. There was no question that uh, Jesus was riding with us that day. You know, know, I feel like Charlie Parker and uh, Ray Charles because both of them love country music. And one of the reasons why we love country music it's because of the stories that they tell. I've always loved um, to listen to the stories 
that come along, you know, in, in country western songs. Um, mm-hmm. My question to you, Richard, is: Do you write your own lyrics, or you oh, have yeah. an assistant? Okay. Oh, I write uh, probably ninety percent of everything. I, I wrote everything on this particular new album, the, the new album that's out now, and then I had a I co-wrote four four of the twelve songs. So I have a guitar player that uh, plays with me in the band and. And I'll get an idea, or he'll get an idea, and we'll get together, and then we'll 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 feed off each other on different ideas on how to write that particular song. But yeah, all the lyrics and everything is pretty much, um, you know, me or the co-writer, which is uh, Tim Bennington. I'm pretty proud to have him on board with me. Well, Richard, I kind of thought uh, I'm so. seeing that the uh, Curtis, I see the clock is starting to run down because we've got uh, the Tuskegee Airmen calling in in a few minutes. Richard, I want to le- leave you with a final song, which is the title cut of your album, Mending Fences. And I always say that we live in a disposable society. And when you wrote this song, that came to mind. And your words of wisdom on how to maintain that relationship, not just with your spouse, but with anyone, is the best advice that I could ever give someone by giving them a gift of this song. So we're going to end your interview with you. And I'm sorry we didn't have you longer because I love talking to you. And I'm going to get a hold of Mike uh, and see if we can get you back on in the next couple of weeks. How's that sound? Well, we'd love to do it for you. I I really appreciate being on your show. And thank you for the promotions and the kind words. (laughs) Oh, anytime. And uh, I've known Mike. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) can't even remember how long <laughs> since he started with Doug Briney. <laughs> That's how long when he brought Doug from Alaska. Um, and I've had you on a couple of times. It's always fun. So I'm going to leave you with the title cut of your album, uh, Mending Fences. I'm telling people to go to your website to get this album and also to get the Love Tattoo to help you with your foundation, Love Tattoo. So, Richard, thank you, and God bless for the hard work you do. Thank you all. We'll see you soon. Okay.
Check it out. And, Curtis, we've got our next guest up in the bullpen, so let's bring our next victim on the line and welcome aboard a Tuskegee Airman, a real national treasure, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. Good afternoon, Colonel. How are you today? Just fine, thank you. And how are you? Oh, I am doing just ducky. I had so much fun reading your book, which is titled Storing that the teeth in the back was today, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II. And it is such a marvelous book that you had written with Philip Handelman. And half an hour is not even enough time to go through the first few chapters, much less talk about your entire book. You encompass so much, and you show how our country has changed over the years for the better, and how you and the men that you worked with uh, in the military during World War II and afterwards changed our nation. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Well, you grew up, you are, your grandfather was a slave, and within just two generations, here you are by flying fighter planes during World War II when you were told in school that colored boys don't fly planes. How did you overcome that? Uh, Well, just prior to uh, World War II, the uh, United States uh, Army Air Corps decided to relent as far as it not accepting uh, African Americans for training as air crew members or uh, pilots. Uh, they decided that uh, they would go ahead and train these uh, African-Americans. However, it would have to be on a segregated basis. And based on that, uh, they established a air base down in Tuskegee, Alabama, strictly for the segregated training of uh, black Americans for air crew members. Now, that has been a world of difference, because here you were living in New York City, and here it wasn't a completely integrated society, but it was fairly close to it. And now you jumped into the deep south where you know, you're facing blatant in-your-face discrimination. You know, the courage you guys had to stick it out, it is amazing. And you think about the accomplishments that you had. Now, unfortunately, none of you were ever labeled as an ace, but you had three uh, down. I'm pulling up the records now. Um, the, you had Captain Lee Archer that had five uh, five destroyed. Well, you're showing five destroyed. Five should have made him an ace. Uh, but no, you were not accorded the ace designation. You had three. And you think about the vast number of, of men that went through this training. Uh, 928 American uh, graduates, five Haitian one Trinidad, 11 instructor pilots, and 51 liaison graduates. Uh, total pilot graduates was 996, of which uh, for single-engine fighter, there were 686. For the twin-engine bombers, was 248. 
that's an amazing amount of numbers of graduates uh, coming out of Tuskegee. I'd like to say also that five of those graduates were uh, native Haitians who uh, uh, graduated along with the uh, advanced training that the uh, regular Tuskegee Airmen pilots took. Yeah, five Haitians and one Trinidad. Uh, that, that is an amazing number. Yes. And out of that, um, you had 84 that were killed overseas during World War II, and yet you guys had one of the best records on bomber escorts and other items. Uh, when it came to you, at that time you were called the Red Tails uh, because of the emblem that was painted on the tail of your planes. When you had an escort, they wanted you right there. That's true. Uh, we were in the 15th Air Force at the time. Uh, that was a, uh, a uh, designation of a uh, Air Force that was in, uh, stationed in Italy. We flew long-range bomber missions from Italy to uh, the central part of Europe. We escorted uh, B-17 and B-24 bombers. Both of them were four-engine bombers that uh, were heavy bombers that carried uh, heavy bomb loads. And uh, there would be, uh, on a typical mission, maybe anywhere from three to 700 of these bombers going to the target, and they would be escorted by various fighter groups, the uh, Tuskegee Airmen being one of these fighter groups who would cover the bombers and try to protect them from invasion or interception by the uh, enemy fighter planes. And uh, this was our specific job. We, there were 10 men uh, on each one of those bombers, and uh, that was the pilot, co-pilot, navigator, uh, bombardier, radio operator, and gunners. And uh, it was our duty to protect them from harm and to keep the planes from being shot down. And I, I think we did a pretty good job. Oh, that you, you did an amazing job underneath the circumstances. This is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, who is also a veteran of the Navy. <laughs> Hello, Colonel. I just sir? wanted to, just fine, I want to say uh, thank you for your service, and that is an honor to be speaking to you. Um, I just wanted to know what sparked your, your interest in um, flight, and um, I mean, I doubt if there was a civil air patrol around at the time. Um, so what sparked your interest in flying? Well, I think it was a very early interest. I was born in Newport News, Virginia, and my uh, parents were living uh, uh, near an air base called uh, Langley Field in uh, uh, Newport, near Newport News, Virginia. But anyway, they would set me out in my crib and, uh, of course, they told me, I don't remember, but they said that the planes flying over from Langley Field would attract my attention, and I would oogle uh, at these planes and uh, make all sorts of uh, baby comments when these planes flew over. Uh, after two years old, or upon reaching two years old, my parents moved to uh, the uh, borough of Queens in New York. We moved next to, uh, very close to a... <clears throat> airport by the name of North Beach Airport. Today, you may recognize it as uh, LaGuardia, LaGuardia Airport. Oh, yeah. 
but uh, I was only about a mile and a half from there. And as a teenager, I used to walk over to the airport and just watch the planes take off and land and fantasize about my being a uh, pilot in the cockpit flying those planes. So I would say that would be my early interest and the thing that sparked my interest in becoming a pilot. Well, you almost got arrested at the airport one day because you got caught climbing over the fence. <laughs> what happened? Well, well, it was one <clears throat> one of those pleasant experiences. I was a little frightened at first. I didn't know whether I was going to be arrested or uh, given a, 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 well, a corporal punishment or something. But anyway, this guard, uh, a policeman, said, hey, what are you doing there? And I explained to him, you know, that... I was watching the airplanes, and I was watching this bomber designated as a B-10 bomber. And uh, after explaining it, it seemed as though he had an interest in aircraft also. And he says, well, well, come on along. Let's take a look and uh, see what that bomber is all about. And uh, we climbed up through the bomb bay there, and uh, he, he sat in one seat, one of the pilot's seat, and I sat in the other there, <clears throat> and we fantasized about flying the bomber there so that uh, uh, that made me feel that uh, these guardians of the peace uh, they sometimes get a bum rap or something like that but uh, he certainly was uh, very friendly to me well I'll tell you what when I read that part I said yeah this is what a, a fellow New York City cop would do because I don't know if uh if uh, Kylie told you that I happen to be a retired New York City cop, and every day going into the precinct, I went past LaGuardia Airport. Matter of fact, I used to own a travel agency prior to that, and I've traveled through JFK and LaGuardia a lot of times. <laughs> so, yeah, I could see a fellow officer doing that. Yeah, <laughs> we, right. we do have a sense of humor. <laughs> We're not bad people. <laughs> But it is a, a very fascinating book, and it's a part of history uh, that must be told. In order to understand where this nation is going, we've got to know where we came from. We've got to know the men and women that fought to get us this far. And I don't know if the listeners are aware, but today is Flag Day. And what a, what a remarkable day to have you on the show, because you fought for that flag. If anyone salutes it and stands up to it, it is you who we honor with it. Um, I'm telling you, your story has to get out. And the the part I found most heartrending is when I was reading the book about your friend Walter Manning. Now, one of the most dangerous things that you guys face is that had you been shot down and captured, uh, you're not treated like the other prisoners of war. And this happened to your friend Walter Manning. Can you tell us that story? Yes, this was on uh, April 1st of 1945. Uh, that was April Fool's Day, and it often, uh, also happened to be uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, we were on a mission uh, protecting the bombers going up to uh, Austria. And uh, after the bombers had uh, released their bomb load, uh, there was a segment of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, seven aircraft to be exact, that were given uh, orders to fly uh, leave the bombers and fly on a what was known as fighter sweep, uh, the fighter sweep being uh, uh, firing at the targets of opportunities such as barges on the Danube River or rolling stock as far as air, trains were concerned, and even uh, trying to intercept uh, or engage into a fight with uh, 
the uh, German uh, uh, fighter planes. Uh, we were up near uh, uh, Linz, Linz, Austria, and the uh, seven of us ran into a horde of German uh, fighters. Uh, the fight that ensued resulted in uh, three of us seven being uh, uh, shot down. Uh, the, the first one that was shot down, uh, his plane was uh, damaged uh, bad enough, but he could uh, eventually uh, reach uh, friendly territory in Yugoslavia. Uh, the second uh, pilot that got shot down, he was killed instantly. The third pilot, whom you mentioned, his name was Walter Manning from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, his plane was severely disabled, and uh, he bailed out. Uh, when he landed uh, in his parachute uh, on the ground, a uh, local mob uh, picked him up, a uh, local uh, Austrian mob, and they delivered him to the local jail. He was in that jailhouse for two nights, but uh, uh, on the second night, another mob, uh, mob came along. Uh, they uh, uh, broke into the jail, took Walter out, and uh, they beat him severely. And after beating him, they uh, lynched him from a lamp post out in the street. And, and, and one thing you, want to, you don't want to say is a black man and lynch in the same sentence. Uh, but the Germans wanted to send a message, and uh, they used Walter as an ex example. But you didn't find out about his fate for 70 years. No one knew what happened to this man. For quite some time, and it happens that there's a, uh, a, a couple that live in Linz, and uh, the government uh, uh, gave them funds to go ahead and make a study of war crimes that took place in uh, Austria during World War II. And uh, they, among their studies, they happened to come across the situation with, uh, with Walter Manning, and they got some depositions from people in the town of, uh, uh, of Lenz, and uh, they uh, found out and pieced together the fact that uh, he was lynched. Wow. You know, it's such an amazing book, and your life is such an amazing thing, and what you've been able to do with it. Uh, when you were with this unit um, and you're traveling on the ships overseas, you had a different reception than you expected with the other pilots that were on there, because you were the only black unit there, and there was the other all were white pilots. You got along great with them, didn't you? Yes, we did. We certainly did, and there's a... Uh, I guess a fellowship among the air crew members that uh, uh, obviates, you know, the segregation that takes place and that type of thing. And we did uh, get along very well. The same thing happened uh, overseas during the Christmas holidays, uh, crossing over from uh, 1944 to 1945. And for uh, 10 days, uh, some of the bombers of the uh, many thousands of bombers that we had overseas there, uh, a, a large number of them could not get back to their base off of a bombing mission because of the bad weather that they had. And they landed at our base. And for a period of, uh, I guess, five days over the holidays there is that uh, they were guests 
of our base, and we were completely integrated during that time. And I think this changed the attitudes of uh, many people or many persons who were in those bomb groups who previously had uh, uh, attitudes that weren't too nice as far as uh, the social socializing with uh, African Americans are concerned. Well, now, you know, after the war is, is over and you're now stateside, they set up a specific base for you guys, and it was the command were black. But what happened was after the war, as they started to do the integration, um, they couldn't quite figure out how to have a black man in charge of white personnel. It made an interesting situation there, didn't it? Yes, it did. And uh, you're, you're talking about in uh, one of the cases there, or the top person as far as the uh, black commanders were concerned, you're talking about uh, General Benjamin O. Davis. Of course, he was a colonel then, but uh, he retired as a lieutenant general, but he was a, uh, a West Pointer, graduated from West Point in 1932, and he was the head of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, and he was a uh, really a commander to be proud of. Well, if it wasn't for him, Colonel. you guys may not have ever succeeded. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, is he the one they used to call Chappie? No. Uh, Chappie, and uh, I had a very close association with Chappie. That was uh, Daniel, and his uh, uh, nickname was given Chappie James, Daniel Chappie yeah. James. And he was he Air eventually, Force, yeah. he, Yes, he generally, general, uh, eventually became a four-star general in charge of NORAD. That's the North uh, Atlantic uh, uh, pact that we had, or Air, Air Force, yeah. and he was responsible for the entire safety of the country is concerned as far as air raids are wow. concerned. So that was quite a responsible position, and uh, I had the uh, distinct pleasure of uh, flying with uh, Chappie uh, from time to time. He was also a twinning oh. pilot, and he would ask for a co-pilot sometime, and uh, I flew with him on a number of occasions. So right, that's a, a proud memory of mine. You know, when you go back stateside now, and they had the units there, um, there was an incident that I, I was reading this. I was I was flying right there next to you when you were out there at the Las Vegas, and you were doing this contest, and rightly you should have won it, but you know. There were some questions about it, but when you talk about the flying and zooming the Grand Canyon, which you weren't supposed to be doing, you know, you can actually, as if you're there in the plane with you, it was so beautifully written. Yes, that's the, uh, I, 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 we owe that to uh, uh, Philip Handelman, the author, and we collaborated uh, together. Uh, I had known Philip, uh, uh, met him a few years before he uh, wrote this book, and uh, I uh, he wanted told me that he would like to write a book about my experiences, and I told him okay that I was too lazy to write one myself. But anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I, I gave him free access to my study and uh, the archives in my basement and the photo albums and letters and things like that. And he pieced all of this together, and I think he did a wonderful job of it. And I think uh, any reader of this book would find it very enjoyable. 
Well, as I tell you, you were one handsome dude when you were younger, and you're still good looking. <laughs> and you, it's a pleasure to have someone of your caliber because we're losing World War II veterans every single day. And soon we won't have you guys around to learn these stories and to be proud of, of what you accomplished. You know, you were not recognized your accomplishments until George W. Bush was in the White House. And only then did your unit get a medal. Yes, we were given the uh, Congressional Gold Medal, and uh, that was uh, Congress looking back on the exploits of the Tuskegee Airmen during World War II, and that was quite a thing. I would say that that was uh, giving full recognition uh, to the Tuskegee Airmen for the job that they performed during World War II, and uh, uh, I, I would also like to say that of the uh, combat pilots, and uh, there were 350 pilots or graduates who went overseas as combat pilots. Of that number, there are only 12 of us left today, and we're all in our 90s. Uh, uh, two of us are 98 years old now. Uh, uh, I'll be 95 in a couple of weeks, and... Uh, I guess our youngest who was in combat there, I guess he's around 94 now. So uh, that's the 12 of us that are, that are left. Wow. Colonel. That is amazing. Did um, any of your um, pilots go into, like, commercial flying? Was that a problem well, for yes. some of them? Yes, they did. And... Uh, uh, in my specific case there, when I got out of the service in 1950, I applied, and uh, let me say this, is, you know, the prejudice and the uh, uh, social situation uh, uh, with African Americans uh, uh, prior to World War II uh, was the same when we got off the boat coming back home uh, in uh, 1946. Uh, things didn't change until uh, sometime in the 60s or, or early 70s there. But in 1950, I applied with two airlines uh, as a pilot, and I was rejected by both of them because of my color. But uh, I, I will say uh, with uh, gladness in my heart that uh, today, uh, in every airline that you have flying through the United States here, you have uh, uh, Afro-American crews, that's pilot, co-pilot, and uh, attendants there. And uh, even in the uh, service planes like FedEx and UPS, uh, they have uh, uh, pilots, uh, black pilots of all ranks uh, flying the uh, aircraft. And let me, let me just say one thing. I was so proud... Uh, I was leaving uh, Detroit one day by uh, Delta Airlines, and uh, this happened about a year and a half or two years ago. But anyway, I uh, looked in the cabin, in the cockpit of the uh, plane there as I emplaned or got on the plane, and inside the cockpit were uh, two black pilots, uh, co-pilot and co-pilot. And not only that, the thing that really brought tears and joy to my eyes is they were both African-American women. Wow. Wow. As, as we have come a long, long awesome. way. You know, um, 
I had a friend on the show just recently, and his his cousin was a Tuskegee Airman. He was a master sergeant, and his last name uh, escapes me. And um, I, I can't remember his name, so I can't ask if you knew him. Uh, but he did fly as well as work on the planes. You know, some of your men there that were on ground crews were also pilots too, weren't they? Yes, there were uh, graduating from Tuskegee and getting their pilot's wings were something like uh, 996 who got their wings. Of that, uh, as I mentioned before, 350 of those went overseas and went into combat as uh, combat pilots, fighter pilots in combat. Uh, The uh, Paintings on their plane, you mentioned before, about the color of the tails there. There were red tails, and uh, uh, that was no uh, uh, reflection upon the racial makeup of the 332nd Fighter Group or the Tuskegee Airmen. That was strictly for identification, where if the radios went out, anybody else could recognize this as being the 332nd fighter group. The other fighter groups had the same thing. They had distinctive markings on their tails, like the 52nd fighter group had yellow tails, the 31st fighter group had candy-striped tails, and the 325th fighter group, which all of those were white, uh, had checkerboard tails. So, as I say, it was strictly for recognition purposes so that we could practice radio silence. Yeah, I know we only have you for a few more minutes because you've got another interview to do. I recommend people uh, to pick up this book, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airmen's First-Hand Account of World War II. Now, not, I mean, we had a lot of servicemen come back, and for whatever their accomplishments, they would have roads and hospitals and, and schools named after them. But you really didn't get that recognition uh, afterwards after you left the service. As a matter of fact, even trying to find a job, you were put through some really horrific and humiliating circumstances that really had my heart you know, crying out for you. Uh, but despite that, you did get the chance to fly one last time, didn't you? I did. And uh, after retirement, after retirement, the uh, uh, government or the uh, Air Force had some surplus aircraft, uh, uh, 13 of them. Uh, they were termed as motor gliders, but anyway, 13 aircraft, four of which were sent to uh, the Detroit chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. Uh, the pilots uh, brought those planes in, and they landed them at the Coleman Young Airport out here, and they sat there for a while, and the reason being is no one knew how to fly them. That's within the Tuskegee Airmen's organization. So I decided to dust off my license, and uh, at 81 years old, uh, I decided to uh, get back into the aircraft again, and uh, I got qualified and got my commercial license in uh, uh, glider uh, uh, planes, and I uh, used the time to take the youngsters in Detroit up for flights to indoctrinate them to the air and uh, hoping that uh, this might inculcate some kind of feeling in them to become part of the uh, uh, employment field in the aircraft industry. And uh, 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 thankfully and successfully, a number of kids did follow that path and become uh, airline pilots. 
Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing story. And, you know, the government every now and then will fly you over to different units that's serving overseas, uh, sort of like a, almost like a USO type of thing to go boost up the morale. So you are still serving our nation today. Yes, uh, in 19, let's see, I guess it was a, a few years back, uh, I was put into uniform again to go over and uh, uh, say hello to the namesake squadron that uh, uh, I had been in uh, during World War II, and they, they flew me over to Kuwait, and uh, the 332nd Fighter Group, which was uh, which is now a totally integrated group. It's neither white nor African-Americans. It's completely integrated. Uh, I had chance to spend with them in the uh, combat zone in uh, uh, Kuwait there and uh, meet with their personnel for, uh, for a week's time. It was a delightful trip. Oh, God bless you, sir. You know, Curtis, do you have one last question before he goes for his next interview? Yeah, I do. Um, what's life now for you, um, being recognized as one of our trailblazers? Well, I'm I'm, I'm retired now. I, I uh, uh, when I could not get into the airlines uh, back in 1950, uh, I decided to go back to school and <coughs> pardon me, I got my uh, degree in mechanical engineering uh, from New York University. And uh, I uh, went up the uh, corporate ladder from there, and I retired in 1988, vice president of a uh, oil and gas, uh, Fortune 500 uh, oil and gas consortium uh, that had its headquarters in Detroit here. Yeah, man, an amazing, amazing story. I'm telling people, go get the book, Soaring to Glory. Just to let you know, most people listen to the show in the podcast later on. All they do is click on the name of the book. It'll take them over to um, Reginate Press, and they can click on it and, and buy your book. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, it has been an honor to have you on, sir. Well, thank yes, you. It's indeed. been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Take God care. bless, and have a safe weekend. All right. Thank you. And check out his books, Soaring to Glory, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen's First-Hand Account of World War II. You know, Curtis, you know me pretty well. You know, we sat, sat down and ate together. We sat face-to-face as we did our broadcast at the conventions and stuff. Um, oh, yeah. So the, you know how this is tearing me up. I, what a wonderful man to talk to. You know, it's funny because when I owned a travel agency back in the late 70s, I had a customer, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Melvin Anderson, and as as genial and as sweet as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart is, my friend, Mr. Professor Anderson, um, was just that same person along with his wife. And he was sitting across the desk from me, and I always called him Mr. Anderson. I always said either Professor Anderson or Mr. Anderson. And he asked me one day, and he says, you know, you've known me for many years. You've sent my family on vacations all these years. Why have you never addressed me by my first name? And I said, because, sir, I have the utmost respect and admiration for you. Not only was he also a World War II veteran, but he was an African-American. He was a college professor, and I held him in such esteem. I would never dare call him by his first name. And and if we treat each other with that type of respect, do you imagine how our society can advance? You know how much peace we would have within these United States 
we wouldn't have this major divide that we see. Just treat each oh, other yeah. as a fellow human being with respect. That's all you ask for. That's all I ask for. And but but this is a lot of children. This is a lot of children that they yeah. have have not been taught to respect themselves, let alone um, others, and especially their elders. Um, what I like about the colonel is that this guy he faced um, true racism in his life. True racism. And he doesn't sound bitter at all, you know. It, it's a, a generation that is leaving us, that has yeah. shown us a path takes so much. And unless we recognize that and act on it, like I said, if we don't know our past, how are we going to know where we're going to? So we got our next yeah. guest in. I'm going to start crying in a few minutes. <laughs> so I better bring our next guest in before I make a complete fool of myself. Uh, I'm just keying his name here. Uh, Okay, let's bring in our next victim. Uh, let's bring up my buddy, Gregory Wrightstone, author of Inconvenient Facts. Uh, Gregory, how are you today? Hey, you guys are uneducated dumbasses. I guess this is not... Uh, let's get rid of that fool. Okay, we're waiting then for Gregory to call in. So, uh, like I said... I don't and know we were just say. talking about respect. We were just talking yeah. about respect. <laughs> no respect. <laughs> but um. But like I was saying, um, you know, you got young people out here, black young black men, who walk around with a, a attitude, and they they angry, as though you know they actually know what racism truly is. And the colonel, like I said. He truly faced racism in his time, and he wasn't bitter about it. But I just find so many, so many in our, our our culture today who are just angry, and really, I don't think they really know why. <laughs> That's the strange part of it. This is the problem we have. You have people that are the liberal elite, and in order to get people to toe the line, they've got to make that victim class. And 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 people fall for it. They fall for the propaganda. Yeah, I'm I'm always going to be a victim. It's always someone else's fault. Instead of taking responsibility for yourself and seeing what you can do to get yourself a, a leg up, you know, like like the colonel did. Here, if you read his the book, what he went through when he got out of the military in order to simply get a job to take care of his family. Now, the things that the humiliating things they forced him to do, and he said, "Wait a minute, I'm not a victim. There's there is a way to get out of this. There is a way to make myself better, to help my family, and be productive." And he found it. He went back to school. He found a skill that he could use, and he he retires as the vice president of a major uh, Fortune 500 company. Right, and, and that's what you do in America. Is possible. Anything is possible in America. No, I'm just but you know the, 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 the policies from the left are, I don't know, it's just preventing a lot of people, young people, from having that mindset. You know, they like you say, they have this victimized um, concept of life in America, and they don't want to do anything with their lives. It's almost as if they don't know they could do something about this situation, you know, other than the government taking care of them. But, you, you know... 
you have a dream, you got to go out and get it. That's that's just the way um, it is in America, you know. Nobody's going to stop you more than you can stop yourself, you know. I mean, there'll be challenges and roadblocks, but still, we are our worst enemies at times. But um, having said that, you can do and be anything you want in America. It's been proven time and time again, and that includes um, people from um, the black community, you know. Like Oprah, Tiger Woods, people of Michael Jordan, of any community, people of That's any right. community. You you just gotta look for that opportunity, realize the dream, look for the opportunity to make that dream happen. And so what if you fail? So you find something else, or you try again and again until you do succeed. Well, that's you know, right. Success is, is never is guaranteed. Not, no, and life is not fair. Just plain and simple, life is not. There, you know, some people are going to have more talent than others. Some people are going to look prettier than others. Some people will be born into a better situation than others. It's just the way life is, and it's from the moment Adam and Eve had their first child, life has never been fair. But it's what you decide, what you choose, is the path that you walk, and the responsibility you accept. And when people realize it's not someone else's fault and, you know, it's up to you to decide well there are different levels of success and not everyone that's successful is rich and famous but you could be good at your job and you know you're making good money and you're paying your bills and you you know you 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 work in some of the um organizations in the community and you contribute in other words to society and that's that's successful being successful right there, you know. Looks like we got somebody exactly. on the line. Yeah, I, I have it. Could be our next this is guest. Our buddy Gregor. Yes, it is, and I'm bringing him on. Light. Ah, one of. Yes. <laughs> Good afternoon, Gregory Wrightstone, author of Inconvenient Facts. Good afternoon. How are you today? Oh, very good. I, I was researching the the latest plant extinction. Uh, bogus uh, claim, and I, time got away from me, so I'm sorry I'm a few minutes late. <laughs> oh, for you, we'll forgive you anything. Uh, I just want to make a, a, a about this conversation, Curtis and I were just having Vorp put in the chat room, which is completely true. Success is measured by how high you climb after hitting rock bottom. And you have been climbing a lot lately, Gregory. I mean, from having your, your book banned, uh, by the public library, having your apps taken down off of the Apple Store. You know, they keep on throwing these stones at you, but you keep on swinging back out of the ballpark. Good Lord, yeah. what are they doing to you? <laughs> yeah, uh, my local library, uh, I, somebody wanted to borrow a book, and they didn't have any copies, so I dropped off a couple. And they said, no, thank you. We, uh, we They rejected my book. Uh, but it's kind of blown up on them, and uh, there have been – uh, commentary that was just published in the Western Journal that's had thousands of, of people commenting or looking at it. Uh, so, yeah, they're, uh, I can't have it in my own local library. I wonder how many libraries, or, or this library in particular, I wonder how many local best-selling authors uh, that they've rejected their books. Probably one now. Uh, <laughs> in the, in the, you know, in their rejection letter, they, they stated that they were 
they were desiring diversity of thought and diversity of opinion. I guess it's just not my my diverse opinion. And in the on their in the beginning of their web page, they they talk about a a pursuit of lifelong learning that they want to encourage. Well, it's more like a uh, that they're pursuing indoctrination of our youth by silencing uh, the science with which they disagree. It is amazing. I mean, I had a laugh when I, I read your article about it, but it's also sad at the same time, because if they're doing yeah. this in the public library, what are they doing yeah. in the public schools? Oh, it's just, I just had a great friend. I've got, a, I, I put a guest uh, commentary up on my blog uh, at inconvenientfacts.xyz for my my friend Lois Kenesheki, who sits on a, a board, a school board, uh, and she reviews the textbooks. Uh, there was a recent AP environmental textbook uh, that she, she, she was the only one that looked at it, and it was just awful. I mean, there was a section in there on on energy. Uh, they they talked about the windmills turning gracefully in the distance. Was that wording like that? Is that is that should that be in a science textbook? Uh, so she fought it, but she wrote a great, uh, great commentary there about that and how they're really they're they're indoctrinating our youth. Uh, and it's not just it's not just here climate change. It's 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 energy and some of the history, especially, uh, has been has taken a backseat. American history, in particular, and promotion of. Uh, Building up of, of some of the least desirable and least uh, attractive historical figures uh, to, to to build up the bad guys and tear down the good ones. You know, it, it's funny because you know every time we say that you know it's a climate climate hoax, uh, we hear about ten voices. You have one voice on our side, and about ten to a hundred voices on the other side going, you know. Just shouting you down, and yeah. I, when I was thinking about this, and here locally they're trying to do these solar farms. And I'm going, you're worrying about global warming, but you're going to install these solar panels that is going to raise the temperature of the surface of the Earth. I don't know, ten degrees or something. I don't know. So <laughs> you've got this heat reflecting back up off these solar panels. And you're not contributing to what you claim is global warming. Does it make any sense to you? No, there's there's so much of this that that just doesn't. And they're they're all hot and bothered. If if I can use a little pun there, but they're all hot and bothered over. Uh, we've had an increase of about 130 parts per million of CO2 uh, over the last couple hundred years. And well, we've talked before. You know that. The long-term picture of CO2, it's its always been much, much higher than it throughout Earth's history, much, much higher than it is right now. And and really since the, our first crops uh, arose, the forerunners of our, of our current crops that we rely on, they arose at the time that CO2 was at around 2,000, 2,000 plus, or 2,500 rather, excuse me, uh, parts, 2,500 parts per million. And remind you that uh, we're at about 400, a little over 400 today. So we've dropped 2,000 parts per million that our plant life really could could rely on. We dropped 2,000 parts per million, and they're worried about a 130 ppm increase. Come on, man! Uh, it, it's it has increased, but it's it's so small as to be 
nearly insignificant. It's significant in terms of uh, CO2 fertilization effect, uh, but uh, uh, it's you know they're worried about all these climate catastrophes coming around because of uh, of warming. And I, I actually I was just looking here, reviewing the last 10,000 or so years of temperature data, and see related and then relating that to sea level. And, and it's fascinating in that we've we've had a tiny bit of sea level rise over the last. Oh, it goes back to about the year 1850 or mid-1800s. Uh, sea level again started rising after it, it had uh, fallen significantly during what we call the Little Ice Age. But but sea level was as much as uh, one to three meters higher during most of the, the period uh, since the end of the last Ice Age. So we're actually in a, an era right now of uh, of lower sea levels than it's been for most of the last six or eight thousand years. You know, um, I had a laugh. I came across this uh, article by a friend of ours, Warner Todd Houston, uh, that he uh, posted, and it's titled "National Parks Quietly Dumps Signs Saying Glaciers Will Be Gone by 2020 Due to <laughs> Mythical Global Warming." I, I cracked up when I saw this. Uh, because according to federal officials, several years in a row of high snowfall and cold temperatures totally obliterated a computer model that authorities uh, relied on uh, to claim that the glaciers would be all melted by 2020. And this was up in Daily Caller. I yeah, I, yeah I, I saw that. It was pretty – Glacier National Park, uh, they had – you know, these, these national parks, uh, not only them, but, but the, a lot of the main government agencies have been – front and center and advancing this climate alarmist agenda and they're using everything they can uh, to 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 advance this and and in glacier national park they had one of their biggest glaciers there they had a big sign of, this is this is proof of man-made global warming they showed where the glaciers how the glacier had been retreating and it was going to be nearly gone by the year 2050 well it's been advancing it's not retreating anymore uh, so it didn't quite quite fit that. So they took they quietly removed the signs, didn't say anything about it. So uh, it, it's it's pretty funny. And I just actually my my daughter and son-in-law took our two-year-old granddaughter to the Pittsburgh Zoo today, and it was funny. I got a my son-in-law texted me a picture from the polar bear exhibit, and, and the te- and the signage they have in front of the polar bears. Warning of their extinction and all the like, and, and you and I know you know that polar bears have actually been increasing. We've got more polar bears today than we have for 50 years. Uh, but again, they they need to advance this alarmist agenda, and especially places like a zoo that are that are filled with young minds full of mush that need indoctrination into into this climate alarmism BS. <laughs> You know, I have to laugh because, you know, we are coming out of a, a mini ice age, and, you know, people don't realize that this has been the coldest it's ever been. You know, I I remember snowfalls as a kid, you know, having to climb out the window because the snow would be obliterating the door. You couldn't get out the door. And since I was tiny and I could handle the shovel, <laughs> I would put out the, the window in order to get a pathway to the door. You know, but we're, we have, this is the cold. Yeah, and it's it was I Annie I I we may be going into into another cooling trend. 
I mean, I know it's weather. We have, we don't oh, don't confuse weather and climate. We were 48 degrees here this morning, uh, here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I mean, it's it's way 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 below. We've had uh, a strange spring that's very cold, very long, very wet. Uh, and these are the kinds of things you see as we go into. We saw that in the past uh, when we entered these other cooling periods. Uh, so we we may be entering another cooling period before too long. If it's not now, it'll it'll come at some point in the future, and, and no matter what we do, because those on the left, the climate alarmists, uh, believe that that CO2 is this is the control knob on the cl- planet's uh, temperature, and it's just not. Uh, the, the warming effect of, of CO2 is much less than what they what they uh, bill it to be, and and we're not going to see those. Their their warning of uh, five and six degree centigrade temperature rise uh, because of increasing CO2, and it's, there's there's just no basis for that. Gregory, no, as a matter of fact, isn't it true? Go ahead, Curtis. Isn't it isn't it true that uh, no matter what the the weather is like, in other words, if it cools down, won't the left still blame it on climate change? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they they'll, they'll twist everything around. No matter <laughs> the, the the key here, the key here is I was I testified uh, before a state house uh, hearing with Joe Bastardi, the meteorologist, and he gets all hot and bothered about these these people, and he gets because he makes his living predicting the weather, and he says, why don't these guys ever predict one of these events happening before it actually does, instead of claiming it to be due to global warming after it happens? And he's got a great – he makes a really good point, and I hadn't thought about it uh, until he said it like that. So, yeah, I mean, if they're that good and these climate models are so good, why don't they predict these crazy weather events before they happen? Because they can't. No, they can't. You know, it – I wanted to ask you, how is your app doing? Because I know uh, for a while I had signed up to get the, the free trial, and then when the free trial was over, I went to go and, and get the full app. And for some reason, I could not get it. It kept blocking me and blocking me. And finally, hmm. I was able to just about a couple of months back, finally was able to get it through the Google Store. Are you still having problems with Apple and Google and, well, and producing the app? Well, now, if you have an Android, you're going to the Google Play Store, I, I take it. And uh, we have I've not heard any problems like that uh, with an app. I'll, I'll talk to you off air. I'd like to find more, find out more about that because we, we, we've not had any problems with the uh, Androids being able to download it. We just were back up a few weeks ago at the Apple App Store. Uh, we had been removed. Yeah, we're, we're doing a lot. We've had uh, – we're going on about – uh, I think 17,000 downloads for Android and another uh, 16,000 for the for the Apple phone. And it's a powerful, powerful tool. If you go to the App Store or the Google Play Store, your your listeners can can download the app. Just search for Inconvenient Facts. Uh, really, really powerful tool for you to to use. It, it captures all 60 of the inconvenient facts with a an easily understood chart. Uh, in most cases, I've uh, created uh, independent videos uh, that are linked to and related to each one of the inconvenient facts. Uh, you can also click. It's important to know what the source of the data is uh, for the charts. So we can click on that, too. And I've just added what's called the, the magic simulator, uh, 
uh, you might want to check into that. And what it does is uh, you can estimate how much carbon dioxide reduction in terms of 20, 40, 60, 80, or 100% reduction, and you can see how much temperature rise would be averted. And I'll just give you, it's tiny, tiny, it's below tiny. It's in almost nearly... Uh, it's nearly zero in terms of we if we we said we're going to reduce CO2 emissions 100%. It's in the hundreds of a degree of averted warming that we would get, and uh, that's an important thing that's not talked about too much. Even if we do do the Green New Deal or whatever this the next crazy thing is, uh, it it really doesn't have much of an effect at all on temperature, uh, and for the main part is. The big, big emitters of carbon dioxide now are, are India and China, and they don't they have any plans. They're going full speed ahead on coal plants, uh, particularly India. China's ramping up also. Uh, they're going to be the uh, – and we're the only nation in the world that's significantly reduced its carbon dioxide output. And that's a mistake because the more we reduce yeah. the output, the more we, we fail to produce you know, crops. We'll lower the, yeah. the production of crops. And people don't realize that. But they keep saying, CO2 is bad. Uh, yeah, if it's so bad, why do plants require it in order to live? Yeah, I'm on the magic simulator. It's cool. I didn't realize it, it automatically updated the app. Yeah, you so should be able to. Automatically... Do you yeah, have it there? It. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. pretty cool. So you can plug in. Just see what 100. And what I did, I before my for my testimony before the. Uh, the Pennsylvania Senate uh, on our new climate action plan here in Pennsylvania, uh, I estimated what a complete reduction of our state's CO2 emissions would be. And it would be uh, six hundredths of a degree Celsius of of averted warming. And that's, uh, or excuse me, no, it was six thousandths, point zero zero six. I had my, my six thousandths of a degree. If we if we had a, if we were able to divert all of ours today, and in the Carolinas, uh, I'm sure just about every state is either doing it, uh, a climate action plan, or planning to do something like that. And so what they want to do is introduce economically crippling uh, carbon taxes or regulations. Uh, they want to promote uh, renewable energy. Uh, that'll drive up significantly drive up energy costs for for everybody if they do this. And really, to no avail. For, for it, it's so close, the amount of temperature rise difference would make it's 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 so close to zero. It's barely distinguishable. Well, I don't know how successful they'll be in doing climate action here in South Carolina, uh, because we still have open burn. I can go in my backyard and burn my leaves and, and trash. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll reduce our carbon emissions, but don't let don't don't stop me from burning my leaves. Yeah. Well, Annie, uh, one <laughs> other thing we should talk about here, just uh, well, it's been almost a month now, maybe three weeks ago. The the UN released a report on on um, uh, animal diversity and extinctions, and in this report, yeah, they trumpeted. Here. Okay, well, they trumpeted that there would be. They're predicting one million extinctions over the next next several decades. So I I looked at that, and I said, oh my goodness, this what this this can't be right. And I looked at and I went back and I looked at the exact same data they had. They had a chart 
They went back to the year 1500, and it showed this just a skyrocketing number of, of extinctions just heading up, and it looked really bad. Well, I went back, and I actually looked at the exact same data they looked at it. Uh, they mapped it out with only five data points. They lumped each century as one data point. Uh, I went back when I looked at it. What we find is extinctions of animals, yes, there was a spike, but it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as uh, people were visiting, new new people were seeing uh, Pacific Islands. It's mostly island nations where maybe rats would be introduced, and the rats would come in, uh, and there would be no predators for them, and they would just wipe out local populations. So since since the uh, turn of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, there's been a significant decline of species extinctions. Uh, to get to 1 million extinctions, you would have to do 25,000 to 30,000 extinctions per year. You know what the average is right now over the last 40 years? Two. Two extinctions <laughs> per year. Not 2,000, not well, 200. Two. And it and they're they're saying there's going to be thirty thousand per year. Well, I had to crack up because you wrote this article, which I did read, and I had to break out a brand new highlighter when I started reading it. Because you wrote that uh, the IPBES report claimed that there were eight million species on Earth, yet only yeah. one point eight species, one point eight million have been identified and named. So how could we have more extinct, more species? We have actually been identified and classified. And if there's only 1.8 million species identified, uh, how did we have, what did they say originally? How many were originally? Uh, Eight million. Oh, they were, they were predicting a million. No, no, they said one million have already faced extinction. So out of 1.8, one <laughs> Yeah. We would have no ants on the world at all. Oh, it's crazy. And it's it's really an abuse of the I was when I saw that I went whoa. I said how 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 do they get how do they think they're going to get away with this? How do they and they do. Um after I published this Mark Morano from Climate Depot and CFAC uh along with Dr. Patrick Moore testified before a house hearing about this and and they used my data to dispute this notion of this looming mass extinctions uh and really Exposed them and, and it looked really bad for them. Uh, but just last week, the Democrat-controlled House held another hearing, and no no one was invited to dispute the the UN findings. So they got to hold their hearing. They got a do-over on that hearing uh, without any pushback, which is just a shame. Yeah, well, you had sent me a whole mess of links on some what some of these people were saying uh, at the uh, testimony. And some of them were using your data, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, Mark Morano did. In fact, his 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 testimony, probably about half of what he – his written testimony uh, included my work, and which is great. Uh, in his when – his, he, when he spoke, though, he went – he just went political, and he just attacked the U.N. for uh, – and, and they're well – it's well-deserved. It's, it's a misuse and abuse of the scientific process to advance – a climate alarmist agenda, so they they need to be exposed here with this. Uh, so and, I, and again, right now I was working just before I called in uh, on this. There was a new one just released a couple of days ago about plant extinctions increasing, 
and I'm trying to figure that one out. It's gonna. I'm I'm working on that now. So look for that next week. Well, no, if, if they lower the CO2, then yes, plants are going to become extinct. Oh so, yeah. So don't worry about. Don't worry about you know closing the Mexican border and not getting your your guava or your papaya or whatever it well, is what, that you're complaining about your well, avocado. No, no, no. Yeah, one of the things you won't be able that, to even grow them. Well, one of the things I'm looking at right now, and I, I, I don't have it completely figured out, was that they broke it into pre-1900 uh, plant species and post-1900, the ones that have been identified since 1900. Well, think about it. Probably the most common plant species had already been identified by 1900, and the only ones they're going to identify from 1900 on are probably pretty rare and already threatened plant species and of course those would probably be most at risk for extinction and that's what they're saying and i've got a i don't have it quite figured out yet but i'll i'll, I'll work on it here and get it figured out i have to laugh when they want to shut down fossil fuel because they had this movement which bloomberg poured half a billion dollars into recently uh he started off with beyond coal and it's it's morphed and now they want to get rid of all fossil fuel. You, you think about this. If we stop drilling for oil, uh, who's going to have the materials to make the smartphones, the cosmetics, and just about everything else we use in daily life? I've asked someone, you know, name me something that you use in daily life that didn't require fossil fuels to produce. Yeah. And I... Cannot get anyone to name me a single thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. It's it's a it's the basic basic building block of our of our economy and our lives today. Uh, and and we're, we're benefiting not just oil, but but the, the cheap, plentiful, abundant, and reliable electricity we get from burning uh, from coal, coal-fired uh, plants. Uh, nuclear, I think, plays a role here too, uh, as long as we can do it. If they can be economically competitive uh and and can be and can get in that we're i'm in the, my wife and i are in the middle of watching uh the new hbo miniseries chernobyl uh, which i'll recommend to you it's fascinating fascinating an example of of what socialism or communism in this case uh does in the in the great uh, soviet union you know with these control economies like like cuba and venezuela and china uh, that stifle uh, the entrepreneurial spirit. But again, Chernobyl by the new HBO series is really fascinating. I have to check, check it out, but we don't get HBO. <laughs> we don't like them. <laughs> that and yeah. Netflix. <laughs> but I, I, have to, I was reading this article about Bloomberg, uh, and he is amazingly successful, and that's not good for us. He wants to, in the next nine years, a cut in half. Uh, he's just about helped kill out the coal industry because um, the only, uh, let's see, where, where was it? He helped retire more than the half the nation's plants, 289 out of the 580 since he began this in 2010. And with the shutdowns of all these plants, up goes your your, your electrical cords. Yeah. You know, and who who gets hurt the most? The poor guy, the, the one who's yeah. the lowest on the economic uh, totem pole. 
yeah, the 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 poor the poor are most impacted by rising energy costs because the energy cost causes everything else costs of everything else to go up. But the poor are impacted uh, primarily uh, and the worst because it's really a, a regressive taxation system because they the poor uh, spend a greater percentage of their income on on energy uh, than does any any better well off people. So so yeah, this is a regressive taxation scheme. Uh, it's it and it does hurt and harm the poor the most. And, so this, you know, yeah, that's that's what we're going to see because, of course, renewable energy is is uh, the much more expensive and unreliable and it's intermittent. So uh, well, not a lot of good. The other the other thing I'll say, Annie, is too. We talked about this extinctions of species in the report. They cited that the greatest uh, impact that's driving extinctions today is loss of habitat. But what's their solution? Their solution for the so-called problem is to pave over, uh, is to cover hundreds of square miles with solar panels, uh, to put up wind turbines across forested areas and grasslands, destroying them and killing the endangered species that they say that they seem that they say they care about. Uh, it's just ridiculous. So their their solution well, not, is actually going to is really going to cause an exacerbation of the problem. Speaking of things that they claim they care about, yeah, I don't like images of marine life being tangled up in plastic. But um, if they get rid of plastic straws and a couple of other plastic um, items that we use, doesn't that mean we're going to have to kill more trees? Yeah, this this plastic straw business is is ridiculous because virtually none of the of the plastic that's in the oceans. And I shouldn't. I have to re, I have to re, re, retract that. I just I was going to say it's it's not coming from us. Some of our and it used to be a lot more, but a lot of our trash got shipped overseas to Southeast Asia and China, and from there it went into the oceans. So you know some of us, but you're not seeing any land any any straws or plastic from from our use and from the United States shores, uh, just an extremely, extremely small percentage of that is what they find in the oceans. It's really the the Southeast Na- Asian nations, including China, that, that are the big problem, uh, problematic countries uh, d- that are dumping plastics into the ocean. I agree. I agree with you. It's uh, and that's something we can really do something about. Everybody cares about that, and it is a problem. And, and it should be there should be an easy solution to it, but it's it won't be by anything we do here in the United States. It's going to have to be a, a joint effort with those other countries that are the the source of most of that plastic. And it's amazing because they kind of like ignore that when you say about the pollution that's in the oceans. You remember with the Fukuyama. Uh, a tragedy over there with that earthquake and the massive tidal wave, how much of that debris washed up on the shores of Hawaii and California and Seattle and that whole western seaboard that got deluged with all this debris from that incident. And then you think about, you know, how many times that when we ship our trash over there, they dump it straight into the ocean, you know, yeah. no landfill, just throw it right, mm-hmm. right back into the ocean. And yet it seems to be, you know, it's easier to ban the plastic than to be responsible about it. Here in, in my county, 
they decided to ban the single-use plastic bag. And I went before county council fighting them and says, listen, this isn't a single use. You may call it a single use, but once I bring the groceries home, I use it to scoop the cat litter out. I use it to, to package things, to ship to people. Now, I use these things. I recycle them and, and just because it's convenient for me. So what they came up with this idea is instead of a single-use plastic bag, you have a single, you have a plastic bag that you can use up to 250 times. No one does that. They use it once or twice, and they throw it in the garbage just like they do all the time. They didn't create a better a solution. They created a worse solution. Because well, and those are unsanitary. No, they're not. Or they have the cloth bags. And, oh, good Lord, how the germs can, can, can yeah. grow on those. Yeah. That's crazy. And yeah. we're going to that in, in our area as well, going away from the plastic uh, back to paper. And I... I, I don't like it. It's a lot. It's going to be more, quite a bit more expensive too. And in, and there's not a problem with plastic bags. They're not. They're they're an insignificant part of the landfill. Uh, and and there there's not a lot of plastic bags then being ending up in the ocean. Again, they'll go into landfills where they're uh, because of their their thin nature that they're just not. Uh, they're not leading to any any problems with filling up landfills. But again, no, it's, it's we, another virtue signaling campaign by by local governments. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because now they offer this multi-use plastic bag. There's not even just the fact that it's not sanitary. They're finding that when they do end up in the landfill, they take longer to break down because they're a, a thicker millet mill rate. I mean, it, it's thicker than the other ones, which would break down faster if you left it in, in the landfill. Oh. Hey, yeah, you're saving the environment by making it <laughs> decompose at a much longer time period. We're brilliant. Okay, oh. <laughs> yeah, just the opposite of what, we, what we want. Yeah, they're, uh, they're actually Absolutely. probably exacerbating the problem. And, you know, you wrote an excellent article uh, that PJ Media carried about this uh, young girl, Greta Thunberg, and how the education system has brainwashed these kids. And as I was reading the article, I flashed back to the memory of those kids that uh, attacked Nancy Pelosi in her office, demanding she do something about climate change. You know, the propaganda that is being foisted on our kids, and the kids are carrying the battle standard for them. They're yeah. using kids. Yeah, Greta Thorn that was Greta Thunberg, uh, the Swedish uh, little girl. Well, she's 16 now, but she stood by herself when she was 15 last year out in front of the Swedish legislature uh, saying she was going to go on strike and not go to school until the legislature act and the adults in the country acted on climate change. And she's really the poster child now, a literal poster child of the student school strike movement. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was a worldwide student strike where millions of students around the world uh, walked out. And they said, the grown-ups aren't doing what need to do because we're, we're all going to be dead in 12 years. We need to do something now. Uh, and, and it's really, they, they don't get it. They, they don't understand. You and I understand uh, because we've talked a lot. You've seen my book and what I've, I've got. You've downloaded the app. Uh, powerful things to use uh, to get the actual facts about climate change out there, and, and they don't—they don't. Uh, there's so much 
there's so much that they don't know about climate change, and there's so much that they think they know that's just wrong. So those two combined for a uh, just bad policy. I don't think we should be look, listening to 15-year-olds or 16-year-olds to advise us on uh, such important matters that uh, will affect our economies and our lives as greatly as they are. Because, you know, I'm, I, I, you've been had me on many times before, and, and that I'm a big proponent of rising temperatures and increasing CO2 that, that's actually benefiting the earth and humanity. It's uh, completely different. Uh, from what uh, we've been told uh, by by the UN, from government institutions, the EPA, even NASA has bought into this this notion of a of a man-made catastrophic uh, global warming. Well, I'm wondering what's going to happen in 12 years when they find that none of this happens. What's going to happen with these people? Because now they will be adults uh, when they realize that it's been a huge hoax. Will there be a major public backlash nope nope because the media will see to it that no one knows about it they won't remember it they won't they won't recall it we've had so many of these past predictions that have been made and nothing's made and, and they come and go uh, predictions of of millions of of climate refugees that was in 2005 the un predicted there'd be 50 million climate refugees by 2010 uh, that didn't happen. And then in 2015, they said there'll be 50 million climate refugees by 2020. Well, that's coming in six months, and I don't see floods of climate refugees. Uh, we see they're trying to portray, though, that these immigrants from Central America are fleeing, fleeing climate change. Come on, give me a break. Uh, yeah, but so we. So the answer of your question is, uh, the media will make sure that they'll cover up for it and don't remind the people. Because, again, we've had so many of these very similar predictions made that, that excuse me, that just hasn't come to pass. Yeah, I remember growing up in high school, it was uh, it was not the uh, climate warming, but climate getting colder. And they sold us on this fact that it's dangerous that the climate gets, if it gets colder, we're in trouble. In a way, they were right, but they were also wrong for the wrong reasons. Uh, the colder it gets, the more we have starvation, uh, we have wars, uh, we will have more tyranny, uh, it, the colder it gets. And history has proven this. And as it cycles warmer, then you have more peace, more prosperity, more growth, more health. And so you know, this idea of it getting warmer is such a fallacy. Right, right. Yeah, human history uh, tells us if we look back over – uh, human history of the last four or five thousand years, going back to the first of the great civilizations, we see that the rise and fall of temperature is closely related to, to the rise and fall of civilizations, and that, uh, that during the warming periods, uh, food was bountiful, food was plentiful, and uh, that they could uh, you could feed your your subjects if you were Empress Annie, and, and it was the cold periods that were just just the opposite that and it's just again this is opposite of what we're being told we're we're being told oh my god oh my god oh my god it's going to warm up and we're all going to die there will be famine and pestilence and and mass depopulation but that's not what's occurred historically through time historically through time we've seen each of the previous warming periods 
uh, were blessed. Humanity thrived. Uh, the Earth's ecosystems thrived. And, and before climate science became politicized, what we found was these warming trends, uh, like the Minoan warming trend, the Roman, the medieval warming trend, these were called climate optima. And it's for a reason, because ecosystems and humanity thrived during those times. Uh, they were the optimal periods of uh, for civilization and humanity. And so we should we should welcome the warming that we've seen. Uh, this this warming trend we're in right now started over 300 years ago and lifted us up out of the death-dealing cold of the Little Ice Age. Uh, so we should we should welcome this uh, because this, again historically these warming trends uh, are, are directly linked to positive aspects for for the human condition. And I don't Gregory. see any indication that this one's going to be any different. Gregory, yes, sir. Isn't the um super volcano at um, Yellowstone more of a threat to humanity than climate change? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that that's going to be bad when it eventually goes. That's a big one. Uh, we don't see any indication. It, it, we could be many thousands of years away from that uh, ever taking place. Might be 100 years. Might be next year. But, yeah, when that one goes, that that will be that'll be a big one because um, there's a vast magma chamber down there. That's of course that's why we have all the the uh, geysers and hot springs in Yellowstone because of the uh, water that's seeping down into that magma chamber. Uh, so so you're right so you, about that. <laughs> yeah, you think they'd be talking about that versus you know the temperature going up a few degrees? <laughs> yeah, except that there's not much we're going to be able to do about that. Of course, there's not much we can do about the temperature of the earth either they think that we can they think that we can uh, just turn the control knob and change the temperature of the earth and that's not the way it works uh, they're trying to control the uncontrollable uh, through slight tweaks of carbon dioxide and uh, I, don't, but I, I think that they're going to find that there, there's very little that we can do to, to control that volcano in Yellowstone or to control the earth's temperature yeah, if that volcano were to go, what would people expect to see here in the United States? Oh, vast portions of the United States would be obliterated. It'll be. I've I've read. I'm no expert. I'm a geologist, but I'm no expert on this. That um, it, it it would be huge. It will wipe out uh, many states uh, just from the direct explosion, uh, and then the shock Rocks. waves. Well, crops. The big thing will be this. Will, this would probably be one of the bigger volcanoes of the last many centuries. Uh, it would be, uh, and it would probably lead to worldwide significant cooling because of all the particulates and sulfates and everything in the atmosphere that would drive down uh, temperatures significantly for a number of years. So, there's this is all speculation again. Uh, we we're, we're speculating because of the size of the magma chamber under there, and uh, that it, that it would be pretty 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 big. We've seen some other the other big ones that went like Krakatoa and El Chichon. I think they would uh, be they would pale in comparison to what what might happen at Yellowstone. And and that's wow. but you're right you're right. We people don't talk about that, but but again 
the indi- there are no indications that this is something that's going to uh, occur anytime soon. <laughs> it's good to know. Very good to know. I see we've got about maybe 10 minutes left, Gregory. Um, I want to just hit one subject because this is something you've talked about also. Uh, we've got the Democratic candidates out there talking about their climate change plans. And Joe Biden has done a tremendous flip-flop on this one, uh, even to the point of plagiarizing someone else's work in his plan. Uh, <laughs> can, you, can you just not love crazy Joe? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, not only did did he get it wrong, he had to plagiarize somebody. A couple of play, he plagiarized two different groups. I'm gonna lift it at word for word. Uh, but God bless Joe. Uh, he's he's you know what, what did Trump call him? Uh, mentally, that was incapacitated, but it was a you know I think weak, mentally weak. weak or yeah. Uh, he is. I don't think he didn't write that climate change proposal. He had a staffer do it. So the first thing you should do is fire that staffer because uh, it it was really embarrassing for him because that that just made everybody go back to uh, whatever year it was a couple of couple of races ago when he was running for president where he plagiarized there and he can't help himself. I don't think from getting in. He he just causes all kinds of problems for himself. But not not only that. I think most rational people in the United States look at the Green New Deal for what it is, an unworkable, basically Marxist uh, uh, ideology that we're there advancing, not just climate change eradication, but it's it's, it's advancing this Marxist ideology, and uh, it's unworkable. People know we can't get rid of... of, of, uh, or fossil fuels in the next 20 years, which is what they want to do. They know that we can't go completely uh, to renewables because we just we're only at two or three percent right now, and we've invested trillions of dollars into this into these these technologies and doing wind and and solar projects. And, you know, some of the, some of the renewables really do make sense, but you know, like. Uh, the renewable that does make sense is hydroelectric, but you think we'll ever have another major hydroelectric uh, facility built? I mean, think of all the uh, environmentals should be going uh, crazy about that, and and they wouldn't want that because, of course, you'd have to flood scenic wetlands and all the rest. So we're, uh, yeah, th- these things aren't going to work. And Joe Biden's, uh, you know, he's again, he, he, I think it would have been good for him. If he would have not embraced this, if we had one person on the Democrat Party standing up and saying no, 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 because what we've seen across the United States or across the world recently is that the the uh, 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 green people backing the Green uh, New Deal type initiatives, uh, Germany, uh, Poland, the UK, uh, the new recent elections. Those those people backing that type of stuff lost and lost big, and they're walking away uh, from this. We saw it in Australia as well. Uh, people are sick, and especially a lot of these companies or countries like Australia and the U.K. and Germany, their citizens have felt the effects of rising energy costs because of renewables. We've not really felt that here. We've We've been blessed because we're, we're we're swamped with natural gas and now oil, 
replacing these coal-fired. So our, our energy costs here in the United States are fairly low. It's those people in the other countries over there that, and Spain is another big one, uh, that embraced wind energy. And their people over there are paying the price in, in much, much higher uh, electricity bills. Australia, they've got a real problem because they invested heavily in wind and solar, and they've been having rolling blackouts. Uh, not so much now because we're entering the winter, but in their, of course, their, their summers and winters are flip-flopped from us. But during their, the summer that they just had, uh, parts of Western Australia were experiencing regular uh, rolling blackouts just because of the intermittent nature of, the, of this renewable energy supply. I don't want that here. I want, you know what I want? I want cheap, reliable, abundant energy, and that's what the country needs and wants to. That's what that's what's going to make America great again, and is making America great again. Well, Gregory, it has been a pleasure having you on, and uh, this is a fantastic show today. It was one great guest after another, as always. So. Uh, good luck with the uh, getting the app back up on Apple, and thank you for the hard work you do. I look forward to new articles. People can find you at inconvenientfacts.xyz, not .com, xyz. Uh, they can download the app from the Google Store. I've got it up and running uh, on my phone, so I don't know what the glitch was with Google, but it's it's cleared, whatever it is. Uh, so that's I, I've had it up running, and I've actually shown it to people and told them about it and got oh, people thank on you. board with it. So you yeah. do fantastic work, Gregory. You know we love you, and I hope to see you next month. I do too. I, I'd like to make that happen. And uh, we are, I'm coming down. Scotch. I'm coming down your way, and I'd love to give a presentation to your conservative friends. Absolutely, great. All right. I'm going to reach out to some people and see what we can do for you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Annie. Take right. care. Gregory writes to. Check out his website at inconvenientfacts.xyz as well as download the app onto your smart device. Oh, man, if you armed with the facts, we can fight these idiots. But, uh, Curtis, you and I, you've got a medical appointment next week. I have my medical procedure <laughs> next week. There will be no show next week, and we will pick up the following week, which is the 28th. And already starting to line up guests for the 28th. I hope to have that show page up early so people can remember that we're skipping one show. Uh, just cross your fingers oh. for me. I'm very optimist, optimistic about the procedure next week. Uh, if all goes well, it'll prevent me from having another stroke, which we don't want to do to Annie. So I'm going to leave oh, everyone uh, with our closing number when the roll is called up yonder. So until then, I say good night. And God bless.